0: We are very, very pleased to present the full 12-hour, 42-minute version of our Secret Society series, collecting all 22 segments, plus a 10-minute wrap-up, followed by all of the soundtrack songs, as well as Danny Unicorn's outtakes. We're publishing this in four pieces, three-plus hours per day, so stay tuned for the remainder of the content releasing Tuesday through Thursday this week. We would love nothing more than to release it as a single file, but our podcast provider's size limits say it has to be broken up this way. Before we kick things off, just want to note a few things. First, to minimize the discontinuity, we actually split each of these episodes during the talking segments to keep all of the music interstitials sounding great without fadeouts. Never fear, the next segment will immediately pick up at that exact same moment, so ideally the transition will be seamless. Unless there's a commercial, of course, but that decision is automated. This also means there won't be any introduction, like this one, before the other three segments, again to make the continuous listening experience as smooth as possible. For those who have already listened to all these shows and only want to hear the new shit, you'll find the series wrap-up and the bonus stuff starting at 45 minutes from the end of part four. Okay, I think we're ready. We'll see you in a couple of months with a whole new topic, but until then, we hope you enjoy the Paranoid Strains Secret Society series.
1: Oh, excuse me, pardon me, how are you, sir? Nice to see you, another victim. <laughs> Come on, I'm just kidding, pal. Come on, welcome to Rush. Step inside, what future adept do I have the pleasure of speaking with today?
0: Uh, I think my name is under J for Jesuit. Yep, that's me. But I don't want to give the wrong impression. While I'm very interested in learning more about secret societies, I'm not positive I want to join one, exactly.
1: Ah, bro, no problem there. We know that choosing a secret society, or whether the secret society life is even the right fit... It's one of the most important decisions of a young man's life. So, no pressure from me. Certainly no pressure from anybody in the room. Don't count on there being any pressure. If you came here looking for pressure, you came to the wrong place. We're all about finding a deep, genuine connection between a new recruit, that, sir, is you, and the mysterious, powerful, I I guess you'd say potentially sinister group that suits him best. So, let's just get a name tag on you. There you go, buddy. And now, what do you say we go meet, everybody? Sure. Sounds good. Ah, look at it. Do you smell possibility in the air? Well, man, why are you just standing there? There's no time like the present to start mingling. Get in there and make some friends. Good luck.
2: <coughs>
3: oh, Shit. Wait, I gotta read off this scroll. Hey, fellow. Well met. Wouldst thou spare a thought to joining the ancient and illustrious fraternity of Kappa Tau?
0: Kappa Tau? K.T. Oh, you must be the Knights Templar. You're one of the oldest secret societies around. Shh,
3: brah. Do you want people to hear you? Ixne on the Ixnay Templarte. We had a super fucked up thing go down about 700 years ago with a certain bonfire happy French king. And now we prefer to just go by the Greek letters,
0: if that's okay with you. But dude, you guys are fucking legends, man. Fighting the Saracens, protecting pilgrims, delving into the secrets of Solomon's temple, not to mention having more money than you knew what to
3: do with. Bro, you know we got stories for days. No doubt, but if you're gonna hang with KT, you gotta keep that shit on the DL. you feel?
0: I've got so many questions, can you- Oh, 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 questions have you, young seeker? Uh, yeah, wouldn't describe myself as young, per se.
3: Dude, we're having a chat, so, like, some privacy?
0: Not to be rude, but I was talking to the emplarte
4: here.
3: Dude. Smooth, you got this.
4: If that is all you need, please don't mind me. These, as you say, emplasté have secrets sufficient for simple minds. I'm
3: feeling like hostility from you, bro. Do we need to take this outside?
4: Perhaps you find your answers outside, Templar.
3: Bro, keep it.
5: Down
4: But we of Ro-Kappa covet the wisdom that comes from truly understanding what is inside.
0: Ro-Kappa? Holy shit, you're the Rosicrucians. Man, do I want to talk to you guys. I hear your whole history may be a complete fabrication.
4: Perhaps, but if so, that false story is spawned a real society with genuine secrets which, if you join us, we would be happy to share. After you've achieved a certain level of spiritual enlightenment.
3: Ah, we Jesuit, you don't want to throw in with this lot of wankers. Come meet the lads at Faimu, or as you may know us, the Freemasons. Dude, you guys are such bullshit. Pretending to be connected to our noble and ancient society. Gosh, you date back to what? The 11th century? We trace our lineage to Hiram Abiff, Master Architect of Solomon's Temple. Now that guy could fucking drink.
4: Oh dear, FJ. How these rabble do carry on. But if you're really looking for a society that can get you on the inside track to little things like secretly running the world, may I recommend that you join Iota Lambda mu.
0: I was assuming the Illuminati would show up at some point.
6: Well, we are, as the
4: saying goes, both everywhere and nowhere. But seriously, Jesuit, it's time for you to make a choice. I... Who's it gonna be? Whose secret society do you trust? To give you
3: the secrets about how the world really works.
0: None of you, actually. Mostly because all of the cockamamie ideas that people have developed over the centuries about the power, reach, influence, and continuity of these secret societies, not to mention the putative value of the secrets they supposedly guard, are way, way overblown. Of course, there's a bunch of true, fascinating history to learn about all of these groups, and even more fun to be had debunking and ridiculing the obvious nonsense that conspiracy theorists have attached to them over the years. Which means it's time for a brand new topic on the paranoid strain.
6: the primal forces of nature, Mr. Jesuit, and I won't have it. Is that clear? You are a fool who thinks in terms of reality and conspiracies. There is no reality. There are no conspiracies. There is only one holistic system of secret societies, one vast, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of orders shrouded in mystery. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Jesuit? You get up on your little podcast feed and howl about how conspiracy theorists are destroying the shared nature of reality. There is no reality. There is only the Knights Templar, and the Freemasons, and the Illuminati, and the Skull and Bones, and the Priory of Sion. Those are the secret societies that run the world today. The world is one big backdrop for a group of initiates, Mr. Jesuit. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. And our children will live, Mr. Jesuit, to see that... Perfect world in which there's no more reality, no more conspiracy, one vast and ecumenical humankind, run forever by the benevolent whims of the secret masters, all necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. And I have chosen you, Mr. Jesuit, to preach this evangel. Why me? Because you've got a podcast, dummy. Thousands of people listen to you every couple of weeks. I think they tune in to hear Dana Unicorn, actually. Speaking of whom...
7: So we're reworking the Ned Beatty scene in the 1976 classic, Network? Something like that. And that would make you the ranting Howard Beale character?
0: I've had all of your condescending attitude toward my little intro sketches I can stand, Dana.
7: But I'm not gonna take this anymore! Hadn't you better get on with the actual show?
0: The lady is wise. Welcome, one and all, to our brand new topic, which, as you probably guessed by now, is Secret Societies.
7: They already saw the title of the episode, doofus.
0: Dana, I paint an evocative picture with my mini-dramas. Yes, Straniacs, we are embarking upon an epic journey to explore the history and impact of some of the most legendary and influential secret societies ever organized, as well as the totally insane ideas that various nutballs have attached to these groups over the centuries. We'll be doing this in two big segments, the first dealing with pre-1900 groups, and the second handling the most recent 130 years of clandestine insanity.
7: Keith's not sure how many episodes this is going to cover. But it's safe to say it'll be a main focus throughout 2021 and potentially into 2022. Turns out there's a lot of weird stuff to go over here.
0: As you would expect, we'll eventually be collecting our short episodes into giant multi-hour epics for the completists out there. Before we dive in, let's welcome in the new listeners. Hi there, new folks. Welcome to The Paranoid Strain. This here podcast comes out in reasonable, bite-sized chunks every couple of weeks. And over the course of a whole bunch of those chunks... We aim to tell you the complete story of one topic or another about which people have developed a bunch of strange, poorly supported notions. We do this so that you can better understand why your roofer, your disturbingly ripped pool boy, and especially the Schmidt family at the end of the block, whom your wife says you're unhealthily obsessed with, and maybe that's true, but there are at least a few obvious indicators something strange is going on over there, No, it's not that unusual for a father and son to live together well into the son's middle age, nor is it so odd that John Sr. passed on his full moniker to his boy, including that incredibly strange second middle name. But simultaneously, the weirdest fucking thing you've ever seen in your life, and the thing that no one ever seems to acknowledge, is that every goddamn time the two of them head out, everybody in the neighborhood drops what they're doing, leans out the windows and doors and shouts at the top of their lungs, the obvious seemingly banal fact that the jingle. Engelheimer Schmitz are, in fact, headed to the Costco or whatever. The whole thing is frankly unnerving. Jesus, that's a long way to go for a joke. Anyway, we're here to tell you why all of those folks believe such weird conspiracy theories. I am your host, Fearful Jesuit, a man who knows why fools fall in love, but isn't telling.
7: Isn't the answer alcohol?
0: Fuck. There goes that secret. But we've got plenty more purported mystery to cover here, and we're eager to start diving into the history of all of these fascinating groups, from the Knights Templar to the Illuminati. But before we do, there are two things to keep in mind. First, while the history of these societies is indeed fascinating, the real-life secrets they hold are often a bit of a letdown. Arthur Goldwag put it best in his Cults, Conspiracies, and Secret Societies.
7: Here in the real world, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the closest kept secret of many secret societies is the fact that they haven't got all that many secrets worth keeping.
0: Fortunately for us, though, while the actual secrets are no great shakes, the secrets that conspiracists have imagined these societies guard are absolutely fascinating. The second thing is, in classic Paranoid Strain style, we can't actually start things off by just launching into the topic itself.
7: Well, we could, but he'd just get all mopey and sullen throw a tantrum, and be just impossible to deal with. So, let's just put up with it, okay? Later, I'll give you all orange slices.
0: Thanks, Podcast Mom. Yeah, in order to give these groups their proper context, we need to look at the most ancient flowerings of secrecy and exclusion that the pitiless passage of time has spared for modern study. We're going to spend some time talking about the early history of truly ancient, genuinely mysterious groups, and how they influence the organizations we'll be focusing on in this series. In addition, we're going to have to provide some basic information on certain Jewish and Christian religious and cultural concepts and institutions, because those are going to be super important for our subjects later on.
7: Especially as we get to the conspiracy nonsense.
0: We should also mention that we're very fortunate to be joined on this journey by Professor Richard D. Spence.
7: And what are Dr. Spence's qualifications exactly?
0: Well, I mean, he's the guy who created the Great Courses class titled The Real History of Secret Societies, for one thing
7: oh, okay, that's a pretty good qualification.
0: Yeah, we thought so. In that course, Dr. Spence had a great definition of what makes a secret society, and we liked it as much as we liked Goldwag's comment we quoted earlier, so we asked him to kick things off by sharing that observation with us.
8: One of the main things about a secret society, it's not necessarily that its existence is a secret. I think that's the most common misconception people would have that a secret society is a society that no one knows about or is trying to keep itself as secret as possible. Sometimes that's true. There are secret societies that like to operate secretly. The most successfully franchised secret society in history is Freemasonry. Anytime you drive into a town with any kind of population and you look at the sign welcoming you to Podunkburg or wherever you're going, that you'll probably see a sign announcing that there's a Masonic Lodge. I mean, that's a kind of hello to fellow Masons that are coming in, but it's announcing to the entire world that they are there. What makes a secret society secret is the secrecy that surrounds what goes on within the organization. So that means whatever is done or discussed, the rituals that might be involved, anything that takes place, let's say, within the lodge, that's what's secret. That's what members are sworn to to preserve the secrecy of. So that means that you can often see the secret society. It's visible. You know, it's like a castle sitting on the hill. The point is you have no idea what's actually going on inside it and that type of thing. Well, that makes some people nervous. They are selective. You can't demand to belong to a secret society. You have no right to belong to one. They are private initiatory organizations that selectively recruit their members. They have to want you. One of the things that's most appealing, I think, about this type of organization is that there's an exclusivity to it. You you have been chosen to be a brother or a sister of this organization, where others have not. If you were in a fraternity or a sorority in college, then yes, you were in a secret society. and you kept certain things secret, didn't you? And one of the things that you might take pride in is that you were selected to be a member of that organization where other people were not. Once you're in, members go through some type of initiation. Initiations can be very broad and general, or they can be extremely elaborate, or even potentially dangerous. The point is, is that there's an initiation. The person has to feel that they have passed the test to be admitted to the rest of this group. Then once you are initiated, you are told that you must keep things that pertain to the society within the society. You don't talk to people who are outside of it, you maintain secrecy. And you can do everything from, you know, swear a kind of general oath to keep things secret, or you can, you know, crush your heart, hope to die, literally or figuratively. You know, it, it depends about how much you want to make out of it. All of this is about how seriously people take it. A person who's not really serious about it, someone who's doing this is, you know, half a joke, you know, probably if things get a little rough, they're going to bail early on one argument that what you need is some sort of test that the, uh, the insincere and the faint of heart will quickly shy away from, leaving us with the people that, that we actually want. The other thing that goes with oaths of secrecy to the organization is a bond with other members. Once you are admitted to this society, once you have become part of this artificial family which has been created. It creates a relationship with a group of people which is different from every other human relationship you have, because it's not its not really based on family. What binds you together is that you both have been selected to be part of this group, and you have both accepted that selection and bought into the, the entire organization. And, and that creates a, a kind of particular bond that you don't have with anyone else.
0: And while we're on the subject, we asked him to let us know why exactly he was drawn to secret societies as a topic of study in the first place.
8: So how did I ever develop an unhealthy interest in secret societies? What academic in their right mind would ever do that? The trigger for most of this had to do with my particular interest in history, and that is modern Russian history. And that means that you're dealing with the Russian Revolution, that that whole sort of era. And once you enter into any kind of revolution, you've entered into conspiracy land. You cannot have a revolution without at least one conspiracy and probably a lot more of them. You must plot and scheme and conspire. And the people who do that best, like Lenin, come out on top. Early on in my career, I wrote a biography of someone that people have never heard of, a Russian revolutionary figure by the name of Boris Savinkov, an anti-Tsarist revolutionary. There was an incident... During the Revolution of 1917, after the fall of the Tsar, before the Bolsheviks, this is when members of the Romanov family, of the imperial family, have become, you know, well, kind of unpopular with the new regime, and they don't know whether they're going to be arrested or what's going to become of them. One of the male relatives of the Tsar Grand Duke Alexander Mihailovich was basically trapped in a town. He was unable to get out. And Savinkov, being a political commissar of the new government, had the ability to free him, to let him go. Now, Savinkov, at this point still views himself as a kind of socialist revolutionary. Now you have this symbol of the old regime, a, a Grand Duke, which is basically coming to him to beg him to help him. But what the Grand Duke does is that he makes his appeal on the basis that we are fellow Freemasons. And therefore, despite our differences, as a brother Freemason, not as the Grand Duke Alexander Mikhailovich, I ask you to help me. And Savinkov, as he later put it, said that I knew what my obligation was, and therefore I allowed his release. So here were two men who were seemingly completely apart on everything else but who nevertheless were bound by that affiliation. And in this critical moment, one Freemason helped another. Whatever his duty to the revolution or anything else was, that's what it was he was going to do. Now, at the time I came across that, that was the first thing I can remember saying, well, what what is this all about? Okay, why would he do that? And then how did that influence his relationships with other people? That was my first real indication of what was going on out there. And the thing about secret societies is that once you know what to look for, you just find them everywhere.
0: Thanks, Dr. Spence. So glad to have you along for the ride. Now, to the topic at hand. But where exactly do we begin? With the Templars, the oldest of the societies we'll be dealing with in depth? Or should we go earlier, to Christian and Jewish priestly orders? Or perhaps something even further back in the mists of time? How to decide how to decide. Wait, I've got it. Dana, where did we put the wheel of arbitrary episode starting points?
7: I don't remember. After you had me haul that god-awful heavy thing out for the assassination's non-JFK episode and then just left it in the middle of the room for someone else, i.e. a woman, to clean up, I think I pushed it into a corner.
9: But
0: Dana, when you move my things, I can't find them.
7: I've told you a million times, you have to find a place to put the things you care about, or else someone else is going to put them away for you. It is not my responsibility to work in chaos because you cannot be bothered to tidy up.
0: Fine. I'll just find it myself.
7: Find a place to put the things you care about if someone else is going to put them away for you.
0: Find it myself. I'll show her. Aha! Here it is. It's under my shroud of turin. Jesus, Dana, that's not a dust cloth. Wow, uh, this wheel thing looks heavy. And I just hurt my back the other day. Dana, I'm sorry I was mean before. Can you move the wheel into the middle of the room again?
7: I don't know. Are you going to put it away this time?
0: Yeah. Jeez. That's it. A little further. No, no, that's not centered. You
10: want it to look nice.
0: There we go. Now, Dana... Spin the wheel of arbitrary episode starting points.
10: Fine. I
7: still don't know why we even have this thing.
0: And we land on... Egyptian mystery religions. Excellent. Great place to start. I mean, we could try to make some presumptions about the deep origins of human worship prior to any written records, but... We don't really know much, except that at some point, people started burying their dead, and anthropologists tend to associate these practices with the beginnings of religion. But the Egyptians, their shit is super weird and shrouded in secrecy, right? Like the Isis and Osiris cult. Only the ancient Egyptians could have come up with something that weird. Well... Well, what? Isis and Osiris are Egyptian gods, right? Right. And there were mystery cults devoted to them, right?
7: Yes. Though you haven't actually introduced what the concept of a mystery cult in the ancient world meant yet.
0: About to get to it. But the point is, the ancient Egyptians kicked this shit off, right?
7: Not exactly. While the truly ancient religions practiced by the Egyptians who built the pyramids almost 5,000 years ago have left some records, our knowledge of them is actually quite sketchy. And while it's likely that priests held close ceremonies related to the Egyptian gods at the time, we don't know much, if anything, about them, and they certainly didn't invite ordinary Egyptians to participate.
0: So where did we get the mystery cult of Isis and Osiris,
7: then? From the Greeks. Once Alexander the Great conquered Egypt and handed it over to one of his subordinates, who declared himself King Ptolemy I, the Greeks started doing their Greek thing, absorbing and modifying the worship of local gods to fit in with their existing pantheon a trick the Romans would eventually borrow, adapt, and kick into high gear once they took over the Mediterranean and Near East.
0: Dana, it's nice that you know a lot about this topic, but I'm supposed to be the know-it-all? You're the relatable, friendly, flavor flave to my verbose Chuck D, punctuating my lectures with bits of fun? Can we get back to our normal rhythm?
7: I suppose. But I'm not wearing the giant neck Yeah, boy!
0: Deal. So, in spite of the fact that the Egyptians definitely had some super cool, spooky religious stuff going on, the mystery cults that eventually heavily influenced both Jewish religious factions around the time of Jesus and the development of early Christian practices...
7: Including the Gnostics we've discussed on a number of occasions.
0: Those really come to us from the Greeks. In fact, the Isis and Osiris Egyptian cult is less ancient than a homegrown Greek version, the cult of Demeter and Persephone, better known for its commemoration in Eleusis the town that gave the cult that celebrated this festival its name, the Eleusinian Mysteries. According to our reading, scholars differ on exactly when and where these mysteries began. Some trace them back to the Minoan civilization, which existed thousands of years before the ancient Greek civilization that we're more familiar with. But the story the mysteries are based on is a pretty well-known and well-established bit of mythology, here synopsized quite nicely by the Ancient History Encyclopedia channel on YouTube.
11: Persephone. Persephone, also known as Kore or Proserpina, was the Greek goddess of vegetation and grain, daughter of the goddess of agriculture and fertility of the earth, Demeter. According to mythology, Persephone was picking flowers in a meadow when Hades, the god of the underworld, fell in love with her and flew down in his chariot and took her away to live with him. While Persephone was in the underworld, her mother Demeter searched the earth for her. She wandered aimlessly until she reached Eleusis. Demeter demanded a temple to be built in her honour at Eleusis, and thus began the sanctuary at Eleusis. Demeter withdrew from the world and lived in the temple after its completion, and created a drought to force the other gods to help release Persephone from Hades' grasp. Now a compromise was struck where, depending on the version of the myth that you're hearing, Persephone either has to live one half of the year in the underworld and half of the year with her mother, or she lives with Hades for just one third of the year. The story of Persephone and Demeter may have been used as a symbolic explanation of the changing of the seasons. This cyclical narrative became essential in one of the rituals of the Eleusinian mysteries, and the symbols of the cult became the ear of corn and a torch, which signifies Demeter's search for Persephone. All initiates were bound by oath to never disclose the details of the mysteries, and the Eleusinian rituals have stayed a mystery to this day.
0: We asked Dr. Spence to expand on why histories of secret societies tend to start with the Greeks, as well as what the Eleusinian and other Greco-Roman mysteries are, and why they're so important to understanding the history of secret societies and the roles they perform to this day.
8: The reason all of this starts with the Greeks is that the Greeks are pretty much the oldest civilization about which we can really say a lot. If you go back to the oldest civilization, if you go back to the Sumerians, uh, we don't even know where their language came from. I think in most people's minds, the Egyptians may be cooler than the Greeks in some way, but they're also kind of hazier. The Greeks simply got their names attached to a lot of stuff. So that's one of the first places we see it. So I don't think the Greeks invented secret societies. I'll give you one of my little theories, for whatever it's worth. If you look at many of these cave paintings, they're deep inside the cave. People weren't actually living in the cave which means they, they didn't have any particular reason to be there other than to go way down inside and paint these pictures and like blow paint over their hands or something. So my little theory is that with what they were doing is that that was the earliest secret society. There would be no way you could ever prove that. Everything in history are a, a smattering of facts around which competing narratives are built. When you come right down to it, we don't have a lot of historical facts. I mean, facts are things like This definitely happened then. These people were involved. Napoleon fought the Battle of Waterloo, and he lost. And therein hangs the whole historical tale. All the rest of the narrative is about why that happened. And you can explain Napoleon's failure at Waterloo any number of ways, all of which make, you know, depending upon your personal taste, varying degrees of sense. The thing is, is that they can't all be true. They all, in some degree or another, make sense. And, and that, I think, becomes often the test that people give, whether it's conspiracy theory or it's anything else they come across. Does it seem to make sense with what I know? I mean, does that seem kind of logical? What do we know about the ancient mystery cults, in particular the, the Greco-Roman cults, the Eleusinian Mysteries and, and the Mithraic Mysteries, to name just a, a couple of them, uh, and what kind of influence have they had up to the present time? The 19th century American Masonic scholar, a controversial one for a number of reasons, Albert Pike, wrote a book called Morals and Dogma. In it, he makes the interesting statement that he believes that Freemasonry is the kind of debased remnant of the ancient mysteries, or that they lay at the root of it. Freemasonry isn't the Colosseum in Ruins, if you think of the mystery cults of Greece Rome as the Colosseum in its heyday, you don't think of Freemasonry as the Colosseum fallen and collapsed. What you think of it as is that a modern building built with the stones of an ancient Roman palace. Uh, I won't claim that I believe that it's true, but it may be as good an explanation for any ancient so-called mystery cults or mystery religions. They were selective in their membership not everybody got in there were oaths of secrecy there were initiations one of the things that you get out of being this is you get access to special knowledge or wisdom that other mere mortals don't have the whole point of it is that membership in this religious group in a kind of religious cult if you want to would would give you access to experiences and knowledge that someone who was outside of the group could not have The Ellicinian mysteries seem to be at, at bottom sort of about revealing the secrets of life and death. We still don't know exactly what went on in their initiations. First of all, you had to drink some stuff that probably had hallucinogenic compounds in it. You're going to go underground, and you're going to be immersed in darkness, and then someone's going to start a fire, and then you're going to see hand shadows placed on a wall, and then you're going to pick mystical things out of a basket. We have to kind of guess as to what this was, but it it was one of the main things that we mentioned, one of the few things that people could say is that once you had gone through this ritual, you no longer feel death, which, if you think about it, sounds a little bit like a Christian saying that my knowing that I am saved removes from me the fear of death, because I am saved, that I am one of the elect, that I am saved through this. And it's one of the things that you can hear in the cult of Isis, who's, you know, as far as I can tell, was the Virgin Mary before she was given that name. The similarities are too overwhelming for, the, for that to be accidental in some ways. What Christianity did is that it became a mystery religion that was accessible to virtually anyone, whereas the others were much more selective. These these various societies spread throughout the empire, they encountered with each other, and I, I think that probably there were people who were members of one for a while and then became members of another, or perhaps members of some of them simultaneously. There were probably people moving from the Christian mystery cult into the IC and mystery cult and back and forth. And these ideas began to combine. But you can only really theorize about it because you don't have anybody who sat down and said, oh, hey, okay, this is how it happened. We started here and we ended up here. And here's every step of the way. No, we don't know.
0: There we have the basic story. And as you've heard, the initiates swore an oath to keep the cult's secrets.
7: And unlike most of the secret society initiates will deal with the many thousands of people who must have undergone these rites over the years appears to have actually kept their oaths.
0: So we don't know much about the Eleusinian rites themselves, but of course, and here's where we get down to the first of our many digressions into poorly substantiated conspiracist conjecture, but the lack of information about the goings-on in these ceremonies hasn't stopped modern psychedelia enthusiasts from conjecturing wildly about them, as we hear in this excerpt from Terence McKenna
7: author of the Stoned Ape Theory of Human Consciousness Development Through Psychedelics.
12: If people drank something from a special cup called a kakekion, and uh, recipes supposedly exist for what they drank, and it's honey, barley, something else, and always water. Graves argued that water is not something that you list as an ingredient of something you drink. He said the inclusion of water in this list is in order that there can be an augum. An agam is when you make a list of things in such a way that the first letters spell out a word. So the idea was that in Demotic Greek, the words for barley, honey, water, and this fourth ingredient that I can't remember, those four words can be arranged to spell out the word miko, which means mushroom. So, Robert Graves was convinced that a psilocybin mushroom lay behind the Eleusinian mysteries. This is a pretty good, uh, this is uh, not entirely unreasonable. Now, but for there, a new theory, which was that uh, on the plain of Eleusis they grew uh, barley. And these people thought that there may have been a special strain of claviceps. Do you all know what claviceps is? Do you all know what ergot is? Ergot is a smut. A smut is a disgusting disease, a fungal disease of grain. Ergonomine tartrate, if you've got a kilo of it, you can settle down and make several million hits of LSD. Wasson and Hoffman argued that what they were doing at Eleusis is that they were brewing an ergot beer. They were deliberately gathering barley that was infected with claviceps and they were uh, brewing an intoxicating beer. And people were having a hallucinogenic experience. Well, and here, in
0: an even area. more appropriate contemporary scenario, Bruce Damer piles on during an interview on the Joe Rogan podcast.
5: They were walking next to fields which had wheat, which had tiny mushroom-like purple. It's uh, a um a brain is shot today, but it was a, a, basically a, a rust that would grow on the wheat that was used to make the kaikion drink that would be given to the initiates after nine days or eight or, eight or nine days. So this is like some ergot-based thing? Ergot-based is an ergotamine, sort of an ergot-based. How do we know this? Because I thought that was like a giant mystery as to what they were taking. Like some folks thought that it was psilocybin, some mm-hmm. people felt mm-hmm. it was an ergot beer. Mm-hmm. It was some sort of an ergot beer. I mean, Hoffman's book, he talks about it probably being an ergot beer of some sort. Right. But it, there was definitely an initiate potion it was extremely powerful. But what makes you think that it was what you're saying? Uh, because you can find this, you know, in the area of Elusis today, you can find, and I'm no expert.
7: I mean, you should have an expert on
0: this. Now, show. we're not saying these guys are wrong. We're just saying that A. The old adage about everything looking like a nail when you're a hammer.
7: Or a psilocybin trip when you're a consciousness expansion enthusiast.
0: Applies here. And B. There's no particular reason to think these guys have it all figured out when the preeminent scholars in the actual field of ancient Greek studies think they haven't. While the Eleusinian mysteries were perhaps the most important, there were other mystery cults, not only the Hellenized... That is, Greekified. ...Egyptian gods we mentioned earlier, but also the later Greco-Roman cult of Dionysius and the Roman Mithras cult. In his historical introduction to the New Testament, Dr. Bart Ehrman notes the importance of these groups in the late B.C. and early A.D. period in the Mediterranean and Middle East. Quote,
7: Many of them evidently centered around a mythology of the death and resurrection of a god or goddess, a mythology ultimately rooted in ancient fertility religion. The periodic ritual of these cults apparently celebrated this mythology in a way that enabled the participants to become part of the entire transformative process of new life. That is to say, the enacted myth about the gods was transmuted into reality for the devotees, who believed they would live again, happily, after death. Those who wished to join were typically put through a period of ceremonial cleansing and instruction prior to being admitted to the ranks of the devotees. We have evidence to suggest that those who experienced the initiation, who could then join in the ceremonies when they were periodically celebrated, felt at greater peace with themselves and the world.
0: This was an important way in which these cults were different from the traditional worship of the gods by those we now consider ancient pagans.
7: That is, those who worship not one, but a number of gods, usually of the Greek and Roman pantheon.
0: Most dutiful worshippers oriented their rituals around prayer and sacrifice to the gods because that is what the gods were understood to have demanded. Pray and sacrifice, and that particular god or goddess would bless you. Fail to do so, and you potentially suffered his or her wrath. The gods were concerned with what people did, not with what they specifically believed. No one sought to have a personal relationship with Zeus, for example. The way a Christian might say she has a personal relationship with Jesus today. Also, traditional pagan worship didn't have much to say about what happened to people after they died.
7: Pretty much everyone went into Hades and had a sort of dull, uneventful afterlife, or else just ceased to exist in most Greco-Roman belief systems at the time.
0: But the mystery religions, with their secrecy and exclusivity, were predicated on forming a close personal relationship with, for example, Dionysius, and devout believers were understood to be staking out a better, more joy-filled post-life existence which ended up with their feeling more at peace with themselves and the world, as we just noted. This, of course, brings us to the question of how or whether these mystery cults, some of the earliest recorded secret societies, influenced Christianity as that religion developed and spread from its origins in what's now called the Middle East. That is, did later secret societies in the Christian West get their ideas from, for example, the Eleusinian Mysteries? Ehrman discusses this question in the same book, noting that there are significant parallels between the cults and early Christianity. Both were interested in secrecy, for example.
7: Christianity was generally secretive during the periods when its followers were persecuted over the first few centuries of the Roman Empire, though those periods were shorter and less widespread than is believed by many Christians today.
0: In addition, both Christians and mystery cult devotees worshipped a divine being who died and was resurrected, and who could give his followers a blissful afterlife. There were other parallels—purification rites similar to Christian baptism, periodic celebration of specific rites by cult members similar to the Christian celebration of the Lord's Supper, etc. But quoting Ehrman directly.
7: Recent scholarship has been less inclined to call Christianity a mystery cult or to claim that it simply borrowed its characteristic ideas and practices from previously existing religions. In part, this is because we do not know very much about what happened during the mystery rituals, especially in the period when Christianity began. For example, did they typically partake of a meal commemorating the death of their savior God? We simply don't know.
0: Before we get completely off of this topic, we want to quote another Airman book, Lost Christianities, which covers the uniqueness of the so-called Gnostic sects of Christianity in the early centuries of the faith.
7: We discussed the Gnostics in depth in our Philip K. Dick-centered Reality Part 2 show in 2019.
0: We certainly did, but we're mentioning them here for a specific reason. While, as noted before, many Christians may have hidden their faith during periods of persecution, per Ehrman. For the Gnostics, the secrecy was the whole point of their faith. Discussing the huge trove of Gnostic texts found at Nag Hammadi
4: in Egypt in the mid-20th century, he notes, Despite their inherent interest, many of these Gnostic texts are not simple to understand. And that, of course, is as it should be. If the knowledge necessary for salvation were simple and straightforward, we all would have figured it out long ago. But this is secret knowledge reserved for the elite, for the few, for those who really do have a spark of the divine within them a spark that needs to be rekindled and brought to life through the Gnosis, knowledge, from on high. While it is one thing to summarize the gist of the teachings of one Gnostic group or another, it is another thing to plumb the depths of the texts themselves. And there is scarcely any religious literature written in any language at any time that can be more perplexing and deliberately obscure than some of the Gnostic writings of Christian antiquity. One of the striking features of Christian Gnosticism is that it appears to have operated principally from within existing Christian churches that Gnostics considered themselves to be the spiritually elite of these churches, who could confess the creeds of other Christians, read the scriptures of other Christians, partake of baptism and Eucharist with other Christians, but who believed that they had a deeper, more spiritual, secret understanding of these creeds, scriptures, and sacraments. Gnostics were not out there forming their own communities. The Gnostics were in here with us in our midst. And you couldn't tell one simply by looking. So, for the Gnostics, the secrecy was,
0: in a sense, the whole enchilada. This perspective was perhaps influenced by the popularity of the mystery cults we discussed previously, with their secret rituals and supposed knowledge of the divine. But it also has obvious implications for later secret societies from the Christian world that we'll be examining.
7: Hold on. You're suggesting these Gnostics may have influenced, for example, the Masons or the Rosicrucians? I am. But weren't nearly all of the texts we consider Gnostic lost from the early Christian period until they were rediscovered in the 20th century? So how would these societies, founded in the years separating those eras, have been influenced by those texts?
0: Yes, that's true of actual physical copies of Gnostic texts. But these forms of Christianity were known about throughout the intervening centuries, not only via tradition, but also through the writings of Orthodox Church Fathers who were arguing against, and therefore quoting, Gnostic Christian writers who lived at the same time. The Gnostic books were banned and largely forgotten by the Orthodox Church, but the Jeremiads against those writings, which quoted the originals and were seen as important theological texts by mainstream Christians, survived. So it was still possible for people to get the gist of what the Gnostics' arguments were, and to be influenced by them, even in the absence of the Gnostics' own writings. Moving on to other potential precursors of the legendary secret societies, we must once again mention the intriguing set of beliefs and practices surrounding the ancient Greek genius Pythagoras.
7: Discoverer of geometry, whom we have previously characterized as a big weirdo who, notably, forbade his followers from eating beans lest they fart.
0: Not, we should note, because he hated the smell, but rather because farts were made up of pieces of the farter's soul. The reason we're mentioning him, though, is not related to the musical fruit, but rather to the secrecy and strangeness that characterized the man and his followers. For example.
7: Pythagoreans literally worship certain numbers
0: like the number 10 in fact to quote professor spence from his great course
7: pythagoras taught that numbers and numerical ratios were the keys to understanding reality the real reality that is mathematics thus was a mystery moreover they believed that the universe was constructed exclusively of rational numbers
0: that is numbers that could be represented in fractions as x over y This formulation doesn't include numbers that are vital to modern mathematics, including the so-called irrational numbers.
7: For example, the
0: square root of 2. And the Pythagoreans took this dictate pretty seriously, which leads us to another interesting legend stating that
7: When one of his students proved that irrational numbers existed, Pythagoras or his students literally threw the guy out of their boat and drowned him for his offenses against the divinity of math.
0: The story is unlikely to have happened as related, but it's worthwhile to consider that these folks were considered fanatical, secretive, and crazy enough that the story at the time seemed plausible.
7: In addition, initiates were required to speak to no one for five years in order to become a follower of Pythagoras. Plus, they had to be celibate, give up their possessions, and become vegetarians.
0: All of this before they could even stand in the presence of the master and learn the mathematical secrets of the universe. And when he lectured to anyone who hadn't gone through these purification stages, Pythagoras would only do so while talking through a curtain.
7: Interesting. But did any of this influence later secret societies?
0: Absolutely. Specifically, the Freemasons, who have a propensity for projecting their existence back sometimes thousands of years before the group's actual founding, are believed by their members to have taken a number of elements of their organization and secret rights from Pythagoras and company. We've got a few more of these ancient concepts to cover, and then we can get to the meat of this story, but we promise all of this is going to pay off down the road, so please stick with us. Next up is the topic of Hermeticism and its shadowy origins with a figure usually known as Hermes Trismegistus.
7: Translation? The thrice greatest Hermes.
0: Some of our fanciest readers may be assuming this refers to a very expensive brand of French scarf. That's Hermes, you Claude, And a much smaller South Louisiana-oriented group may recognize the name of a fair-to-middling Mardi Gras crew that rolls first on Friday.
7: I mean, they got decent lights with that neon, but they ain't no muses, darling.
0: Yeah, you're right. But what we're talking about here is a mystic connection of the Greek god of writing and magic, Hermes, with his equivalent from the ancient Egyptian pantheon, Toth.
7: Oh, now crew with Toth, there's a parade, cher. But they got so many doin' floats. By the time Bacchus rolls, I'm fitting to pass out from all them abedas I drunk.
0: Ain't it the truth? But back to our topic. Hermes Trismegistus was a completely separate divine being from the original flavor Hermes, and was primarily known as the apocryphal author of a series of writings renowned for their great wisdom. These, as you might expect, came to be known as the Hermetic Library, and the branch of knowledge and study devoted to them is called Hermeticism. The Hermetic texts were long believed to date back to earliest antiquity, but these days scholars place their creations somewhere around the year 100 CE, meaning that these ideas emerged from the stew of religious and philosophical concepts that were roiling the Roman world and which would eventually produce not only Orthodox Christianity and Christian Gnosticism, as we've noted, but also important schools of thought like Neoplatonism. The Hermetic text's unique contribution here was not only their detailed discussions of philosophy and other topics, like alchemy and astrology, but also their perspective. That is, that all true religions originate from a single genuine theology, which was given directly from God to man in time immemorial. The term for this is Prisca Theologica, and that term actually dates to the Renaissance, 1300 or so years after these texts were written, A time when they were rediscovered and when they became highly influential with a wide range of renowned scholars.
7: Including Giordano Bruno, who was famously burned at the stake for, among other things, believing the earth rotated.
0: And an even wider range of crackpots.
7: And with some who were an intriguing combination of the scholar and crackpot, i.e. Isaac Newton.
0: We'll get back to him momentarily. By this point, the Christians who embraced Hermetic texts thought of them as being written by a sort of pagan prophet who foretold the development of Christianity.
7: Remember, they thought these texts predated Jesus, when in reality they appear to have been written in the decades after his death.
0: We're not going to do any more synopsizing of this topic because we stumbled upon an incredibly useful, interesting YouTube channel called Esoterica, where one Dr. Justin Sledge breaks it down for us.
9: A manuscript bearing a tight, though legible, Greek minuscule hand appeared to be primordial wisdom stretching back to the most remote antiquity, indeed the source of all wisdom itself. The task of rendering that Greek into Latin was given to the extremely talented scholar Marsilio Ficino, and most famously, he interrupted his own translation of Plato's complete works to take up the task. Facino, only in his late 20s at the time, began the work of translating what he believed, and many at the time also believed, was the teaching of the sages of all sages, perhaps the teacher of Moses himself, the art philosopher and hierophant, Hermes Trismegistus. The texts Facino produced have become the backbone of what we now know as the Corpus Hermeticum, the collected wisdom and teachings attributed to the thrice great Hermes. What's come down to us doesn't seem to have come down to us systematically. It appears that the Hermetic texts were graded based on some initiation process that is now unclear to us. What we now possess seems to be texts at various seemingly random levels of this process. So it's unclear how these texts should be read, in what order, or even after what kind of initiatory or revelatory experiences. The philosophical Hermetica are typically structured as discourses between Hermes and his pupils, though Corpus Hermeticum I is taken to be a discourse between divine nous, or mind, and Hermes Trismegistus himself. The content of the discourses range enormously despite their relative brevity, from the nature of the cosmos, to the origin and nature of evil, to the process of change, the nature of the mind and the soul, the very origins of the cosmos itself, and most importantly, the process by which one can achieve salvation. Sometimes a single tractate may cover several of these topics only in a couple of pages. The best theory we have as to the origins of the text is that they began as brief sentences, much like the wisdom literature of the indigenous Egyptian culture, and around these sentences grew a history of learned exposition. These discourses, as I mentioned earlier, were probably part of a system of graded lessons, for initiates passing higher and higher to what seems to have been the goal of the Hermetic philosophy, the salvific unification of the initiate's mind slash soul with the divine mind or soul that is the ground of being itself. The worldview of the Hermetica is difficult to reconstruct, but let's give it a try. They appear to have held that an androgyne divine mind begat the cosmos, sometimes called the second god or logos, and in turn created human beings, which are seen as both divine and non-divine, given that they are both composed of perishable matter and imperishable soul or mind. This is basically a monistic worldview, although some anti-body dualism does appear from time to time. The apparent task of the initiate is to ascend through the planetary spheres, through both ethical purity and mental contemplation, until reunited with the divine oneness, which seems in some sense possible while still in a physical body. This importantly separates the hermetists from the Gnostics, who are typically held to be radical dualists, viewing the physical world as fundamentally evil and in need of escape.
0: Now, why exactly are we talking about this at the beginning of our Secret Societies series? Because many of the secrets we're going to hear ascribed to these groups, and especially the larger overarching conspiracist view of these societies' roles in generating and concealing knowledge, will touch on hermetic and other esoteric topics. And while these are a fantastically interesting field of study, as Dr. Sledge's YouTube channel can amply demonstrate, they also have an unfortunate tendency to attract the most credulous sort of ravings.
7: And? What? I presume you're going to play one of these ravings? Oh, okay, if I must.
13: The secret of secrets is the grand arcanum which is hiding in these texts. It's the magnum opus that the philosopher has been looking for, the elixir of life, etc. It all has to do with the microcosm. Of course, what else could it be? In the Bible is the story of the microcosm of the man and how man was created. It's a literary masterpiece. But in the Bible, there is only one story, and that is the story of the creation of man and how man is the temple of what they call God or the temple of Solomon. Solomon's temple was not built with uh, hammer or saw, or the, or the sound of hammer or saw. The temple is the body, you see, and this is how it works. This is how the, the temple is built. It's built on the principle of 12, because the universe is built on 12. Everything the universe does, it does through the number 12. 12 is the completeness of its cycles, you see. And we have to understand numerology and, and the power of the numbers. What does one mean? What does two mean? What does three mean? When you doctor the books and you change their true message and you overlay it with historical facts and, and things to blur out the true beautiful message that is at the bottom of it, um, you do that for control so that the people do not know the true riches of the wisdom that's in these scriptures. And I'm uncovering those those true riches that are in the Bible. And you have to understand that the Bible is the greatest astrological treatise in the history of this planet.
0: God, I enjoyed that. So, we've introduced Hermeticism. It looks like all we have to do is synopsize the Old Testament.
7: Fuck off, Jesuit. How long is this quote-unquote introduction going to last?
0: It's not as bad as all that. I just have to discuss a few big ideas, the most important of which is Solomon's Temple.
7: Okay, but the second I hear, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, I'm out.
0: Fair. Okay, so perhaps one of the most widely revered sites in the world is the hill currently known as the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. Of course, Dome of the Rock is what Muslims call it. Jews have a totally different point of reference when it comes to this particular piece of real estate. That is, it's the site of the two great Jewish temples that once stood in the location of what is currently one of the world's great mosques.
7: Jeez, that situation sounds like it might lead to some hurt feelings.
0: You think? But let's get to that in a moment. Solomon's Temple is one of those iconic concepts that predates reliable written records, so in the absence of those, we have to incorporate those records that we have, which in this case means the books of the Hebrew Bible, or as many nominal Christians will know it, the Old Testament. There's a large part of the first book of Kings,
7: or as a recently former president might have called it, One Kings.
0: That book goes into what might be termed a tedious level of detail about the building of said temple, so we're only going to make Dana do a little bit of it as narration. But we're also going to give her some portentous sound effects to go with the uninteresting words.
7: And the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was three score cubits, and the breadth thereof twenty cubits, and the height thereof thirty cubits. And the porch before the temple of the house, 20 cubits was the length thereof, according to the breadth of the house, and 10 cubits was the breadth thereof before the house.
0: Riveting stuff. But it's surprising how important these verses, which amount to the recitation of blueprints, will seem to our future secret society members.
7: And others. Please recall that Sir Isaac Newton believed that his work on the dimensions of Solomon's temple was far more important than all of his contributions to physics.
0: Told you we'd get back to Sir Newton. This teaches us two things. A. You can be the world's greatest physics genius and still be absolutely fucking wrong about which of your efforts really contributes to the store of human knowledge. B. Really smart people have historically taken this temple shit very, very seriously. Continuing the traditional history of the temple as related in sacred Jewish books, it was completed during King Solomon's reign, and the whole point of building this big-ass temple was that it would be, in the eyes of Yahweh,
7: that was a usually unspoken word for the one and only God in the Jewish religion.
0: A fitting building to serve as the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, any child of the 80s knows what the Ark of the Covenant is, and that one Yankee archaeologist waged a two-hour, apparently ineffectual attempt to keep it out of the hands of the Nazis. <laughs>
7: Which didn't matter much, as the moment said Nazis opened said Arc, they got face-melted in a way that still haunts young Jesser's dreams.
0: Dana, that's not fair. I know it looks hokey now, but in the early 80s, that shit was scary. So many of us know that the Ark was a golden-crusted box that, in Spielberg's version, contained sand and pretty lady murder ghosts. But in the Bible, it was supposed to hold the original tablets on which God himself had etched the Ten Commandments in the presence of Moses. Confusingly, if you follow the Bible story, these Ten Commandments that would have ended up in the Ark are actually somewhat different from the original Ten Commandments that were listed in the Torah-slash-Bible.
7: That is, the ones that many of you learned in Sunday school.
0: But the second set were supposedly inscribed by the Almighty after Moses broke the first set. Also
7: penned by the finger of God himself
0: when the prophet got super pissed at the Israelites worshipping a golden calf. But the ones that Moses broke are the ones that everyone remembers, so let's just say those are the ones in the Ark. Now, the Ark was this super powerful object that was carried ahead of the Hebrew armies, and which ensured their victories over the various peoples they conquered in their quest to secure the land that God had promised to Abraham.
7: That is, essentially, the land that comprises the modern nation of Israel, though the boundaries of this kingdom would be just as disputed in ancient times as they are in the current political climate.
0: Okay, so now we understand. After hundreds of years, King Solomon is chosen by Yahweh to build a temple worthy to hold the Ark and the commandments therein. But once they were placed in, as it's known, the holiest of holies in the temple, the story ends, right? Au contraire. According to the biblical accounts, the first temple was destroyed in an assault by King Nebuchadnezzar II in about 600 BC. Thing is, though, modern archaeologists dispute basically everything about that first temple, including especially the idea that Solomon was the king when it was built.
7: They actually think the first temple was built around 300 years after Solomon's reign. What is
0: undisputed, though, is that whatever the first temple was, it was besieged and destroyed, and another temple was built afterward and lasted for a really long time. Almost 600 years. This was the temple that was refurbished by King Herod about 20 years before Jesus' birth, and from which Jesus himself drove the money changers in an important gospel narrative. Eventually, the second temple was destroyed in 70 CE by the Romans as punishment for an ongoing Jewish rebellion.
7: Which we mention in our Assassinations Non-JFK Edition episode, specifically about the siege of Masada.
0: Eventually, Islamic rulers took over Jerusalem and built the Dome of the Rock Mosque in honor not only of the place where Abraham,
7: who was important in the origin stories of Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike,
0: was called to sacrifice his son Isaac before God called the whole thing off, but also because the same rock where Isaac was supposed to get cut was the launching point for the Prophet Muhammad's night journey, in which in the company of angels he toured the heavens in a single evening.
7: That mosque was built in the 7th century CE and has been in place since, though as we'll see there has been some back and forth in terms of who controls the building and what it's called.
0: In fact, the current-day site of the Dome of the Rock is also, not coincidentally, the site of the famous Wailing Wall, the holiest place in the world for followers of Judaism. You may recognize this as the place where devout Jews write prayers on slips of paper and place those tiny slips in cracks between the bricks.
7: And the reason that those devout Jews place those scraps of prayer in those cracks is because the Wailing Wall was originally the Western Wall of the expansion of the Second Temple, erected by Herod the Great also known to Christians as Herod, the guy who tried to kill all the babies to murder Jesus, though that description is disputed, both by other religions and by scholars.
0: In other words, the Wailing Wall is the only remaining intact piece of the Second Temple, so the Jews focus their worship there. But for our secret society's purposes, the most important things about the site are the location itself, and then the legends about the structure of Solomon's original temple, and the secrets that structure supposedly hid.
7: Anything else?
0: Yes, the -the Temple-slash-Dome-of-the-Rock legends also mention that there are secret tunnels, passages, and rooms, which will also play a part in our later Legends of the Templars.
14: Ali of Herat, who visited the Temple Mount in 1173, when Jerusalem was under Christian rule, gave this description. Underneath the rock is the Cave of the Souls. They say that Allah will bring together the souls of all true believers to this spot. You descend to this cave by some 14 steps. The cave of the souls is the height of a man. Its length extends 11 paces from east to west, and 13 paces from north to south. Muslims say that the souls of the dead can be heard here as they await the day of judgment. And according to both Muslim tradition and the Talmud of the Jews, the rock lies at the center of the world. Beneath it is the abyss where Muslims say the waters of paradise flow, but the Talmud says the waters of the flood rage. In some Jewish traditions, It is also regarded as the place where the Ark of the Covenant stood, and where, when Solomon's Temple was destroyed in 587 BC, the Ark was concealed and remains hidden.
7: So introduction finished? Not
14: quite.
0: We also have to take a quick detour into legends of King Arthur and the Holy Grail.
15: I oh, mean, if I went round saying I was an emperor, just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at
6: me, they'd put me away! Shut up, will you? Shut up! Ah, oh, now we see the violence inherent in the system! Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help, help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what
0: I'm on about. Do you see? Yes, young Jesuit was introduced to the Grail through the kind offices of Messrs Cleese, Palin, Idle, Jones, Chapman, and Gilliam. But the Holy Grail legend dates back to the late 11th or early 12th century, and though the form factor and function of said Grail evolves over that time, the most important version is that the Grail is a cup or plate used by Jesus himself during what's known to Christians as the Last Supper, and days later, the blood of the crucified Jesus was caught by Joseph of Arimathea who, according to some of the Gospels, offered his family's tomb to be temporarily, as it turns out, used to house the body of J-Man after his death. We are absolutely fucking positive that anyone who has existed for any length of time in our Hollywood-dominated culture has at least heard of the Holy Grail. Not only is it pivotal in a weirdly altered form, in the extremely popular, yet shockingly bad, Dan Brown novels about protagonist Robert Langdon, it is also central to the other most iconic scene involving Indiana Jones, outside of the Raiders' face-melting, namely the super-fast aging of the dude who picks the wrong cup out of a lineup in the third movie.
3: He
14: chose... poor
0: before Indy correctly identifies the cup of a carpenter, pours magic hydrogen peroxide on his dad, James Bond, and heals the man's Nazi-caused bullet wound. Now, the Holy Grail is, unlike Solomon's Temple, definitely not biblical in its origin.
7: And definitely entirely legendary, also unlike Solomon's Temple.
0: Interestingly, it first became an object of fascination and veneration as part of the tales of King Arthur and his knights. But it was considered both a legend and a real object during the time when the Knights Templar were on the scene. Namely, the long and bloody period we now know as the Crusades.
7: Wait, it sounds like you're adding yet another goddamn introductory topic. No, 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 no.
0: Dana, think of this more as a direct bridge into our first major subject. After all, the origin of the Knights Templar makes absolutely no fucking sense. If you don't first know about what how and why the Crusades existed in the first place. And unless our listeners are particularly interested in this subject or are already familiar with a lot of Christian and or Islamic religious history, it could get pretty confusing. So give me just one more quick bit of scene setting.
7: Fine, but I invoke the lightning round. You have three minutes, 30 seconds to introduce the Crusades. Tough,
0: but fair. Okay, so I'm assuming that either from basic knowledge of history or church mosque attendance, all of you out there are at least vaguely familiar with the outlines of how Christianity and Islam got started. So we'll sketch the simplest possible story. Around the time when we in the West marked the calendar shift from BC to AD or CE, a baby was born in the Jewish town of Nazareth in Galilee.
7: This timing is not a
0: coincidence. He grew up to be an itinerant teacher or rabbi, preached about a coming kingdom of God, ran afoul of both Jewish and Roman authorities, and was executed by the latter via a grisly crucifixion in the city of Jerusalem in about 33 CE. His followers went on to promote an evolving religious vision that eventually held that this man, Jesus, was in fact the Son of God, and the religion that bears his name gradually spread across the world. On to Islam. In around the year 610, a 40-year-old Arab merchant in the town of Mecca began dictating a series of what he termed revelations that he claimed were delivered to him from God via the angel Gabriel. These were collected in a book today known as the Quran, which became the holy book of Muhammad's religious and military movement known as As Islam. During his lifetime, Muhammad's armies conquered all of Arabia, and after his death, it would spread across the world. One of the key moments of his biography for his followers was a miraculous night when he ascended from a particular point in Jerusalem.
7: We mentioned this event earlier.
0: Now, by the time Muhammad came on the scene, Jerusalem had passed from the control of now Christian Rome to that of the also Christian Byzantines,
7: i.e., the eastern half of the Roman Empire after it split in two.
0: The Byzantines then lost and rewon the city a number of times in an ongoing series of battles with the Persian Sassanid Empire before finally Jerusalem was captured by a Muslim army in the year 638. It remained in the hands of Muslims for the next 450 years, though during that period it passed into the hands of a number of different warring caliphates, including the Seljuks and the Fatimids. In the meantime, all of Europe, except for the parts that had been subsequently conquered by invading Islamic armies, had converted to Christianity and many of these Christian believers felt a calling to visit the places in and around ancient Israel that are discussed in the Bible, especially the New Testament, which deals specifically with the life and death of Jesus and his followers. This pilgrimage movement gained momentum in the 11th century.
7: Remember, that's the one where all the dates start with 10-something, which both makes sense and is super confusing
0: as a general wave of piety swept through Europe. The papacy...
7: That is, the office of the Pope, who then, as now, was known as the head of the Roman Church, but it was at that time only one of several church fathers with religious authority over different parts of Christendom.
0: ...had been rebuilding its influence for a few decades, when a combination of violence against Christian pilgrims venturing to the Holy Lands, a request from the Patriarch of Constantinople... Istanbul. For military aid against the Muslim armies that had conquered parts of Byzantium, and the various political and economic pressures that always secretly undergird these historical events, led to Pope Urban II calling in 1095 for a great Christian crusade to help the Byzantines and retake Jerusalem and the surrounding Holy Land for Christ. And that's where, much to Dana's relief, we finally transition over to talking about the... We want to know. Knights Templar. Now, technically, the knights weren't around for the first, and most successful, crusade, in which organized Christian armies swept across a divided and militarily unprepared swath of the eastern Mediterranean. There were numerous battles, plenty of intrigue, especially between the Western European crusaders, known at the time as the Frankish armies, and the Eastern European or Byzantine Christians, who often butted heads with their Western co-religionists
7: even though the crusade was launched, at least in part, to help those self-same Byzantines.
0: But for our purposes, we're going to pick up the story 20 years after the First Crusade succeeded in establishing four so-called crusader kingdoms that encompassed parts of modern-day Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, and of course Israel. That last one is the most important for the formation of the Templars. In the wake of the crusaders setting up shop, Christian pilgrims came flooding into the Holy Land now that they would, presumably, be able to visit the places where their Savior had walked without fear of being assaulted or killed by those hostile to their faith. Only, the thing was, while Jerusalem, Antioch, and a number of other newly Christian cities in the region were, indeed, safe and hospitable to these pilgrims, the surrounding areas, in which many of the holiest sites were located, were still rife with bandits seeking to rob and even kill these religious travelers. In 1119, a French knight named Hugh de Payet proposed creating a group of warrior monks, headquartered in Jerusalem, who would dedicate their lives to protecting these pilgrims. The king and the patriarch of Jerusalem—
7: Who was, in a sense, the pope of that region.
0: —approved of this plan, and thus were born the Knights Templar. At this point, we should introduce the first of two excellent books that ground our tales of both the historical doings of the Knights, as well as the fevered imaginings that later conspiracists have grafted onto them. Dan Jones' The Templars is an excellent deep dive into the group, which we strongly recommend you check out. Link in the show notes, of course. One of the first things you'll learn from this book is that the group's full title was actually The Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Jerusalem, and that they were only one of a number of Christian military orders created at that time. Jones lists, for example, the Order of St. Lazarus, which was designed to help pilgrims who were also lepers, the Sword Brothers of Livonia, who were dedicated to fighting pagans in the Baltic region, and most importantly, the Knights Hospitaller, who actually predated the Templars.
11: The
7: Hospitallers are actually still around as a Catholic order to this day, unlike the Templars. Or maybe that's just what the Templars want you to think.
0: There was a big difference between the groups, though. The Hospitallers started as a purely medical religious order, tending to sick and wounded pilgrims in the Holy Land. They took up arms and adopted military discipline in order to protect those under their care. The Templars, meanwhile, were created from the beginning as a combination of religious and military order, and they were generally seen as the greatest and most feared of the forces of the Crusaders. Now, you might be wondering how exactly the Christian church could get behind an idea that amounted to taking monks
7: That is, men who had forsworn marriage and private existence for a life of service to God.
0: And merging that concept with the idea of armed warriors. After all, the dude whose teachings they were supposed to be emulating was famous for telling his followers to offer their other sheik when someone slaps them, rather than fight back. The Templars, Hospitallers, etc. actually owe their existence to a theological innovation that was generated in response to the perceived need to reclaim the Holy Land from the godless hordes of Islam.
7: Their phrasing, not
0: ours, of course. Once those lands were retaken... It became obvious that the armies who did the conquering would be returning to their countries of origin in Europe, and that therefore those who remained in the Holy Land, many of whom would of course be in religious orders, would almost certainly be put in a position where they must take up arms to defend the faith and the territorial gains the original armies had made. Once this new thinking was applied to turning the Hospitallers into a group who could defend themselves and their patients, it was a pretty short leap to the creation of the Templars. Of course, once Hugh and his band—
7: Original name, The News.
0: we given the go-ahead. They needed some place to live, which is when they were assigned to a wing of the once and future Al-Aqsa Mosque, aka the hotly contested previous site of the definitely historical Second Jewish Temple and potentially of the arguably legendary First Temple of Solomon discussed earlier, which of course is how the Knights got their identity as the Knights of the Temple or the Templars. True to their founding, the early years of the New Order.
7: Tone it down, Jesuit.
0: Yes, am Anyway, for the first few years, the knights indeed lived up to their full title. They lived in the temple, served Christ, and were poor as dirt. Here's how Jones characterizes the purpose of the Templar's early days it must have seemed that a complementary order of armed escorts could lighten the
15: load on the Hospitallers and further improve conditions for the thousands of pilgrims who passed through the region. Around the time of the Council of Nablus, it was decided that instead of being attached to the Holy Sepulchre, this pious band of knights should be given independence, some means of feeding and clothing themselves, access to priests who could lead prayers for them at the appropriate hours of the day, and a place to live in one of the prominent areas of Jerusalem. The crown would assist with the means of their upkeep, but their main task would be one of equal interest to king, patriarch, and every other Christian visitor to the Holy Lands. They would be responsible, in the words of a charter produced in 1137, for the defense of Jerusalem and the protection of pilgrims. Part bodyguards, part paupers, a tiny brotherhood devoted only to alms and prayer. These were the men who became the first knights of the temple.
0: Eventually, through the support of Bernard of Clairvaux, a heavy hitter in the Western Christian world at that time,
7: a fact reflected in his eventual post-mortem title, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux,
0: the Templars were given the explicit approval of the Pope and the support of the Church in 1129. Just as importantly, they were made answerable only to their Grand Master and to the Pope himself. Jones explains how this unheard-of independence played out in practice over the subsequent decades.
15: While obedience and discipline within their own command structure was tight, the same was not necessarily true when it came to fighting with others. Templars owed allegiance to no one but God, the Master, and the Pope. Neither kings nor patriarchs had any formal command over them. And though their able services were sought and willingly given, in the end, the Templars were ultimately free from any effective oversight. They defended the idea of Christendom and the honour of Christ, but how they did so was technically a matter for their own instinct and judgment. For the most part, this made them an extremely agile and useful elite fighting force. At times, however, their independence made them dangerous and they came to be suspected as much as they were admired by the secular rulers with whom they had to share
0: the field of combat. Jones points out that the creation of the Templars was actually the beginning of what we now think of as medieval knights. Before this time, knights were just a sort of mercenary warrior caste. They could as often be found terrorizing peasants with their skill at arms as serving in a petty noble's army. The Templars, by infusing the idea of knighthood with religious purity, in a sense delivered to us the idea of arthurian style knights-errant as we now understand them, with the underlying ideas of chivalry, defending virtue in the weak, etc. emerging as a result. Over subsequent years, they proved themselves in battle against various Islamic fighters, and their fame grew both in the Holy Land and back home in Europe. The Templars, Hospitallers, and others began receiving bequests of land and money from religious monarchs and other wealthy Christians. The idea being, if these orders had enough independent sources of funding through grants of land and businesses, they could dispense with the concerns of this world and focus their attentions on praying to God and smiting the infidels. With these gifts, the Templars expanded and became more powerful. Jones details the holdings that the Templars held in England alone by the 13th century.
15: Manor houses and homesteads, sheep farms and water mills, churches, markets, forests and fairs, sprawling estates and isolated villages, where dozens of men worked in serfdom. This was a property portfolio accumulated over more than half a century from pious donations and smart business deals. It included hundreds of interests scattered across England.
0: This same sort of catalogue could be recited for holdings across Europe during this period.
7: Which, as you might imagine, made it harder to maintain their image as the poor fellow soldiers.
0: Exactly. But so long as they kept whipping ass on the battlefield, all was well. But they didn't? Well, no. As we noted, the initial success of the Crusaders came largely due to the lack of cohesion among the various Muslim states and armies in the region. But inevitably, someone arose who was able to conquer and cajole his way into forming a united opposition to the Christians.
7: That man being, of course, al-Nasir Salal al-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub.
0: Or as the Crusaders called him, Saladin. Over five years from 1182 to 1187, Saladin's army swept the Crusaders almost entirely out of the lands they had conquered handing the Knights Templar, as well as the other Christian armies, defeat after defeat. Finally, in late 1187, Saladin's victorious army marched through the streets of Jerusalem, allowing the remaining Christians 40 days to put together sufficient ransom to be allowed to leave the city unharmed. The Muslims washed the former temple, now a rededicated mosque, from top to bottom with rosewater to cleanse the stink of the crusaders out of the place. The Fifty Knights Templar who had survived and who remained in the city escorted the remaining Christians out of Jerusalem for what turned out to be the final time. This was absolutely devastating to the Templars' morale, of course. As Jones put it,
7: It was hard to avoid the conclusion that God had abandoned his soldiers.
0: This was not the end of the story of the Templars in the Holy Land. In fact, as Jones notes, with so much lost, the pressure only increased on them to protect what remained. Michael Hagg, in his book, which, confusingly for our purposes, is also titled The Templars, like Jones's, notes that counterintuitively, the loss of Jerusalem made the holy warriors
7: That is, mainly the Templars and the Hospitallers.
0: even more powerful. They had independent holdings and financing, and their entire purpose for existence was the holding and now the reclaiming of the holy land.
14: At no point in their history would the Templars be more powerful and in the century after nearly everything in the Holy Land, was lost to Saladin.
0: Which means they were raring to go a couple of years later when the Saladin-related setbacks to the cause inspired the Third Crusade, led by the famous Richard the Lionheart.
7: An animated lion whose crusade engendered absence from his throne in England allowed his brother, Prince John, through his lackey, the corrupt sheriff of Nottingham, a sort of obese wolf bear type thing, to tax the fuck out of everybody Inspiring a talented fox archer to set out with his band of merry men and a supple bow to put things right.
14: I saw that documentary. The West reacted with shock to the loss of Jerusalem and responded by launching the Third Crusade in 1190. In a remarkable series of victories, 1st Philip II of France and Richard I of England, known as the Lionheart, recovered Acre in July 1191 And then Richard went on to take Jaffa and Ascalon as well, after defeating Saladin in a great battle at Arsuf in September 1191, in which the military orders played a leading role.
0: But while Richard was successful in retaking a number of key cities and castles, he stopped before Jerusalem, assured by his advisers that while he could take the city, it would be impossible to hold it. Richard returned to Europe after cementing a three-year truce with Saladin that kept most of Richard's reconquered territory intact. Unfortunately for the Templars, this was pretty much the last high watermark of the whole crusading thing. Jerusalem was in fact reconquered in 1229 by Christian forces, but they did it without the aid or presence of the Templars, and it was only held for a decade before, once again, it was taken by Muslims. Even though the Crusader kingdoms had been whittled away by 1190, the Templars held a fortress at Acre.
7: Which under the name Akka or Akko is a port city in modern-day Israel
0: for another century, thereby lending at least some credence to the idea that they were still an active military force, ready and willing to be the tip of the spear whenever Christian Europe was ready to resume crusading. Thing is, though, that never really happened in an international and comprehensive way ever again. The Templars ended up with a sort of nominal military footprint in Acre and surrounding areas, but with a much more significant presence in European states, not as a military force, but as, well bankers. the 12th and most of the 13th century, in spite of their military setbacks, the Templars were seen by a succession of popes and various local rulers as a great asset. There were, of course, whispers about them. For example, Jones quotes John of Salisbury, who along with many others writing at the time thought the whole idea of the holy city of Jerusalem being defended by warrior monks as a disturbing contradiction in terms.
7: Harkening back to that theological frisson between the nonviolent message of Christianity and the violent pursuits of the Templars.
0: Hag notes that, to their detractors, there was a feeling that because war justified the existence of the Templars, they therefore feared the outbreak of peace. John was also among those who aired suspicions that there were some dire secrets being hidden behind the white cloaks of the Templars.
15: When they convene in their lairs late at night, after speaking of virtue by day, they shake their hips in nocturnal folly and exertion. It was exactly a century since Hugh of Pan had established the order of the poor knights of the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. Those 100 years had seen the Templars transformed from indigent shepherds of the pilgrim roads, dependent on the charity of fellow pilgrims for their food and clothes, into a borderless, self-sustaining paramilitary group funded by large-scale estate management.
0: And of course, the juxtaposition between the vow of poverty the knights continued to take and the sheer scale of their international holdings was placed into still starker relief after a new wave of monks who took their vows of poverty very seriously came around. For example, St. Francis of Assisi's Franciscans, who began to capture the religious Weltanschauung. So why were the Templars, in spite of these factors, still very popular among the powerful? It was their evolution into what amounts to the world's first international financial institution. The way it happened was this. One. Pilgrims, you remember, the travelers on a holy mission to walk in the footsteps of their lord and savior, whom the Templars were founded to defend. No matter how much protection the military orders could offer along the way, these unarmed civilians still had to travel through some dicey areas, full of bandits, confidence artists, and other hazards. Two. Because the Templars had a bunch of land holdings and income from various farms and other businesses that had been bequeathed to them, they had cash on hand at each of their strongholds throughout Europe and the Crusader states. Three. Pilgrims could deposit their money at the local Templar castle before leaving on their journeys in exchange for a letter of credit. Then, when they arrived at their destinations, they could present the letter to the Templars in that area, who would return the Pilgrims' funds per the terms of the original agreement. Four. And there wasn't any worry about the Templar depositories getting robbed.
7: Something to do with that term stronghold and the difficulty of hauling away loot while pursued by a group of vengeful battle-tested, well-armed knights.
0: Yeah, something like that. Five. So eventually the Templars had so much money on hand they were able to both make loans to local kings and also take deposits of those kings' funds and other treasures. Eventually, it wasn't just kings. Other nobles, rich merchants, etc., began storing their valuables at Templar houses. The benefits were obvious. Not only were the Templar vaults patrolled constantly by armed guards, but because they were considered a religious institution, no believer could even attempt to raid or rob the place under fear not only of punishment by civil authorities, but the potential of eternal damnation if they were excommunicated from the church. As Jones details, by 1240, the Templars' banking operations were diverse and significant.
15: By the 1240s, the Order was providing diverse financial services to some of the richest and most powerful figures across Christendom. In England and France, they provided safe storage for sensitive diplomatic documents. They also protected particularly valuable pieces of royal treasure, and in the case of France, acted as an official deposit house for royal revenue. They were used to distribute pensions promised by monarchs to wartime allies and were party to agreements in which they operated as a mutually respected third party between warring rivals. They guaranteed debts, ransomed hostages and prisoners of war on credit, and could arrange very large loans, such as the one made in 1240 to Baldwin II, the Emperor of Constantinople, secured by his very own fragment of the
0: True Cross. This, of course, made the Templars even more powerful. But unfortunately for them, after the fall of Acre to the Muslim Mamluks in 1291, as Hag notes, they for the first time really felt as if they had lost their whole raison d'etre, and in the ensuing decades, the crusadeless crusader knights began to be seen as both expendable and too powerful by one of the two people in the world in the best position to do something about it. The Pope? No, the other one.
16: No free will or psychology.
0: King Philip IV of France, the most powerful sovereign in Europe at the time. Now, one king or another turning against the Templars shouldn't have been a big deal.
7: Remember that they were set up as a stateless order, answering only to their Grandmaster and the Pope.
0: But the reality was more complicated. Many Templars were originally from France, and the order had a strong base there. As their banking activities expanded, the French Templars began serving, by the 13th century, as a sort of de facto treasury for the nation. This didn't sit well with Philip, who seems to have really bought into that ancient concept of the divine right of kings. In fact, he so believed in the righteousness of his own quest for power that he spent much of his reign attempting to bend the papacy,
7: which was generally seen as the most powerful position in the Christian world at the time,
0: to his wishes, thereby becoming de facto head of both church and state. As part of this effort, he had actually had a pope arrested and roughed up. Then, when he died he had the next pope poisoned, and subsequently he squeezed the College of Cardinals into electing a French pope. The new guy, Clement V, knew what side his bread was buttered on, and acquiescing to Philip's wish, then refused to relocate from the French city of Avignon to Rome, inaugurating a nearly 70-year period when the papacy was in France.
7: The so-called Avignon papacy.
0: That characters in Umberto Eco's novel Foucault's Pendulum, perhaps the greatest conspiracy theory story ever written and a book we'll eventually discuss at length, lay out Philip's objections to the Templars with a bit more sympathy to the crown, if you'd like an alternative viewpoint.
7: They were a sovereign order beyond any royal control. The Grandmaster ranked as a Prince of the Blood. He commanded an army, administered vast land holdings, was elected like the Emperor and had absolute authority. The French Treasury was located in the temple in Paris, outside the king's control. The Templars were the trustees, proxies, and administrators of an account that was the king's only in name. They paid funds in and out and manipulated the interest. They acted like a great private bank, but enjoyed all the privileges and exemptions of a state institution. The king's treasurer was a Templar. How could a ruler rule under such conditions?
0: Meanwhile, the Templars, after the fall of Acre, had retreated to the island of Cyprus, where they elected the man who turned out to be their final Grand Master, Jacques de Molay, in 1292. De Molay soon headed back to Europe, determined to rebuild the military arm of the Templars after their recent defeats. His plan was to visit all of the kings, assuming that they would be filled with fervor to pay for a reconquering of the lost Holy Land holdings for the glory of God. This was a reasonable assumption, considering that's exactly what had happened with the Third Crusade seven decades earlier. Unfortunately, though, he found little enthusiasm for mounting new international armies for foreign adventures, and by the turn of the century, the Pope was toying with a policy that would combine the Templars and the Hospitallers, bringing them under closer papal control. So de Molay's grand crusading ambitions got bogged down in preserving his order's independence. Meanwhile, Philip IV was desperate for money, mostly to pay for the frivolous and expensive wars his father and he had waged. His first ploy for cash was that classic Christian kingdom standby, expelling France's Jewish population and stealing all of their money in 1306. But the returns from this endeavor didn't meet his needs, so he set his lawyers to the task of developing a plausible reason to arrest the very wealthy Templars. By October of 1307, that job was complete, and the Templars were rounded up en masse on Friday the 13th of that month.
7: This is one of the many reasons some have offered for the widespread notion that Friday the 13th is unlucky. Jones
0: details the accusations against
15: the Templars. The charges against them were utterly heinous and scandalous, almost beyond description. The brothers of the Order of the Knights of the Temple, wolves in sheep's clothing, in the habit of a religious order vilely insulting our religious faith, are again crucifying our Lord Jesus Christ, read the royal letters. So the roundups began. There was little resistance, and only a handful of brothers tried to flee. Instead, the Templars, long renowned for their valour on the battlefield, trooped out blinking into the autumn dawn to be led away meekly to their fate.
0: While Hag establishes why this action being undertaken by secular authorities was so unusual, offering interesting insights into the accusations leveled against the Templars by Philip's lawyers.
14: The charge against the Templars was heresy. When being inducted into the Order, initiates were required to deny Christ, spit on the cross, and place obscene kisses about the body of their receptor. They were also obliged to indulge in sexual relations with other members of the Order, if requested. And they wore a small belt, which had been consecrated by touching a strange idol, which looked like a human head with a long beard, called Baphomet, possibly an old French distortion of Mohammed. The arrest and charging of the Templars was unusual, in that though authorized by the papal inquisitor in France, the action was effected not by the Church, but by the King. The normal procedure in heresy cases at this time, was for the Church to make the arrests, and try the accused heretics under Church law, only releasing them to the secular authorities for punishment, if this was the verdict of the court. Yet here was a military order, which for nearly two hundred years had owed its loyalty directly and solely to the papacy, from which it had enjoyed complete protection, and suddenly its brothers were arraigned by secular power. This alone must have come as a shock to the arrested Templars. That Philip was able to arrest and charge the Templars was owed to a loophole in the law, going back to the time of the Cathars and their trials nearly eighty years before. So serious was the spread of the Cathar heresy, that in 1230, Pope Honorius III had bestowed extraordinary powers on the Inquisitor in France, extending his reach even to the exempt orders, the Templars, the Hospitallers, and St. Bernard's Cistercians, whenever there was a suspicion of heresy. After the Cathar heresy was eradicated, This grant of powers was forgotten by the papacy, but it was never revoked. This meant that the Templars, though otherwise untouchable, were vulnerable to the charge of heresy, a discovery made by Philip IV's assiduous lawyers, who now used it to devastating effect.
0: We'll be covering the Cathars immediately after we finish with the Templars, but for now the thrust is that the Pope gave the French king extraordinary powers and then neglected to revoke them once the supposed Cathar threat had been dealt with.
7: Think of it as a 13th century version of the Patriot Act extensions Congress keeps passing.
0: Because this loophole was only available for the crime of heresy, a case for heresy is what Philip's lawyers delivered. The accusations against the Templars appear on some level to have kinda, sorta been... true, but not in a way that would make them guilty of anything other than being a slightly odd secret society.
7: You know, the kind of stuff a bunch of dudes might get up to over a few hundred years in a foreign land without any women around.
0: Yeah, and surprisingly, it's all less gay than you might have expected. It's more just weird stuff. We'll explain a little later, but the other thing that makes it tough to piece together the truth or falsity of the accusations against the Templars is that the vast majority of the testimony taken by Philip's lawyers was the result of extensive torture of the interviewees.
7: Which, of course, 21st century U.S. history teaches us can be used to deliver testimony that backs up whatever accusations the torturer wants to hear, regardless of their validity.
0: This horrific shortcut by Philip's forces is even more egregious when you consider that most of the French Templars who were rounded up and tortured were elderly, unarmed people. They weren't warriors, but for the most part functionaries who cared for the grounds, households, and stables that were owned by the order. Then, there was a further layer of complication. Though many have seen him as a pawn of Philip, what with the Avignon papacy and all, Clement V was conscious enough of the need to maintain the power of his office that he didn't take kindly to Philip's legalistic encroachment on what would normally have been purely the arena of the ecclesiastical...
7: That is, churchy.
0: ...authorities. Regardless of the fig leaf offered by the Cathar precedent, there ensued a great deal of wrangling between Clement and Philip over the Templars and the relationship of church and state, the majority of which we're skipping over. But it is important to note that the interests of the king and pope were at odds throughout this period. Clement wanted to reform the knights and likely combine them with the Hospitallers, but keep the orders largely intact. Philip, both to expand his authority and to get some much-needed funds, wanted to completely liquidate the Templars, both on paper and physically. This is not a modern reinterpretation of Philip's motives, either. A decade after his death, he appeared as an avatar of unchecked lust for money and power in one of the most famous works in the history of literature.
14: His wars against England and in Flanders had cost him a great deal of money and he had inherited a huge debt from his father's wars. The Templars were a tempting target, for unlike the Hospitallers, whose wealth was entirely in land, the Templars from their banking activities also had liquid wealth, which the king could quickly and easily grab. By accusing them of heresy, Philip could turn the Templars into reprehensible religious outsiders like the Jews, against whom persecution was readily rationalized. Many foreign observers, especially those in northern Italy, where there was a more complete understanding of the power of money than anywhere else in fourteenth-century Europe, were convinced that getting his hands on the Templar's cash and precious metals was the primary motive for Philip's attack. Dante famously attacked the king's actions in Purgatorio, the second book of divine comedy, written in the immediate aftermath of the Templar's arrest. I see the second pilot's cruel mood grow so insatiate that without decree his greedy sails upon the Temple intrude.
0: Further complicating the picture was the fact that many knights, including de Molay himself and his closest lieutenants, would confess to every crime that Philip's lawyers dredged up, but then later, when in the presence of the Pope, and with the threat of torture belayed, would amend or retract what they had previously said.
7: This, in fact, was the most dangerous part of the whole saga for the knights. Under the rules that governed these trials, most heretics who confessed their sins and did penance were welcomed back into the loving arms of the Mother Church. But those who later abjured their confessions left themselves open to being seen as unrepentant sinners, and therefore worthy of the death penalty.
0: Eventually, after literally years of jockeying over power and responsibility between the king and the pope, Philip took the unrepentant Jacques de Molay, who had perhaps decided that an honest death with a clear conscience was preferable to what would probably have been a slow death as a prisoner in the pits of Philip's jails. And along with one of his closest associates in the Templars' leadership, he was burned at the stake in Paris on March 8, 1314. Because the Templars had been officially disbanded by the Pope during one of the many legalistic back and forths he waged with Philip, the whole order was eventually shut down across all of Christendom and they faded into legend.
7: Or at least, say the conspiracists, that's what you're supposed to think.
0: you'll have noted that we kind of blitz through the arrest, accusation, torture, papal interrogation, recantation, and final destruction of the Templars for the sake of providing a capsule history of the order. But of course, it's precisely those parts of the story that are most salient to the various conspiracy theories that have accrued to the Templars since their demise. So now that you know the way things turned out, we need to look more closely at what, exactly, the Knights were accused of, what we can tell about those accusations' connection to the Templars' actual behavior, and how the whole sad story eventually led to their legendary, mythical, and almost totally fabricated post-mortem reputation. First, let's look a bit more closely at the accusations that Philip's lawyers ginned up. As we noted earlier, since at least the 13th century, there were those who believed the Templars' fierce, self-sacrificing, and abstemious reputation was undeserved at best, and fabricated to hide monstrous secret behavior at worst. And we acknowledge that these accusations might have a hidden grain of truth, as Dr. Spence will tell you, the ideas behind any narrative that tries to make sense of the Templars' arrest, trial, and eventual formal dissolution will inevitably rest on a significant amount of conjecture. But that doesn't mean there's no truth to the accusations.
8: There's always this argument to be made, is that the Templars were, you know, they were victims of a conspiracy centered around the King of France. But uh, there's also the idea is that they were on one level guilty of everything he was accusing them of. The Templars are accused of many things that you cannot substantiate, and which may be nothing more than scurrilous lies that were told about them, or they may contain some part of the truth. To some degree, it comes down as to how clever they were, to what degree they had prepared for this eventuality.
0: We want to try as best we can to figure out whether or not the Templars were actually guilty of the sorts of things that the average, normal Christian European would have thought of as heretical crimes at the time.
7: Remember, That means we're going to be discussing things that these days would maybe qualify as mildly eccentric behavior. But the rules in 14th century France were, as you might imagine, somewhat less go-along-get-along than we 21st century developed country peeps are used to. For example, the right to commit heresy willy-nilly is kind of built into the idea of free speech. So it can be tough to get into a mindset that would advocate for heretics to get the death penalty. But trust us. Getting accused of heresy, especially when you were part of a religious order, was bad news in the 1300s.
0: So a lot of what Philip's lawyers argued in their heresy case was based on rumors surrounding the Templars' mode of living in their remote castles, and especially their initiation rites. Again, Dr. Spence earlier made it clear that some sort of initiation is an unavoidable part of the whole being-in-a-secret-society experience. But as we will find in later examples...
7: Especially the Freemasons.
0: Keeping initiation ceremonies secret can lead to gross exaggerations by outsiders who only hear vague rumors about what's actually going on. And the thing is, we still don't have any really solid, untorture-derived descriptions of the secret initiation ceremony of the Templars.
7: Because, duh, secret.
0: The key Templar rites that were put forward as Beyond the Pale were 1. Kissing. 2. Repudiating the cross and or abjuring Christianity. 3. Allegedly worshipping an idol usually called Baphomet. So, one at a time. Now, this whole kissing thing, I think we as modern people are
7: pretty cool
0: with it, so long as the folks involved are all consenting to the kissing.
7: The consent part being an aspect of the kissing process that has, confusingly, come as a surprise to a number of powerful people over recent years.
0: We don't want to brag or nothing, but we here at The Strain have consensually kissed a number of people over the years, including tiny Jesuit,
7: paternal, cheek and forehead-based chaste kissing,
0: lady Jesuit,
7: decidedly non-paternal, not at all chaste kissing,
0: and paranoid strain orchestra leader Daniel Arizona,
7: drunken, college-era, on-a-dare kissing, but still five stars, would very much recommend.
0: Anyway, aside from the degree to which the recipient is interested in said kissing, this idea isn't all that controversial today. But of course, in this case, we're dealing with the super homophobic mores of a culture that prevailed 700 years ago, when surely men kissing other men was considered totally verboten. Right, author Dan Jones? Exchanging
15: kisses was an accepted part of feudal relationships and a common way of expressing Christian peace. If it shocked the king or his ministers... They made no mention of it in their first meeting with James. Neither did they take the master to task on any other issues of sexualized contact between brothers in the order, although the rules certainly mentioned them.
0: Oh, for real? So, during this period, dudes kissing was an important part of the exchange of respect within an otherwise aggressively heteronormative society.
7: Well then, what was a big fucking deal about two hot-blooded Templars doing some epiglottal jousting?
0: That's where the lawyering comes in. Per Jones, Philip's attorneys really earned their keep by transforming this apparently anodyne symbol of acceptance and respect into something that at the time would have been considered extremely transgressive, though by modern lights would be too tame for Game of Thrones. The inspiration for the charges was the
15: kiss of peace given to each new brother, but fed through the royal propaganda machine directed by William of Nogare, this had become a ceremony of orgiastic depravity calculated to shock all faithful Christians. According to very reliable people, brothers were forced on entering the order to remove their clothes and stand naked before their receiver, who celebrated their entry to the order by kissing them first on the lower part of the dorsal spine, secondly on the navel, and finally on the mouth, in accordance with the profane right of their order, but to the disgrace of the dignity of the human race.
7: Please note, when they say lower part of the dorsal spine, they're implying that the Templars, at best, were literally kissing each other's butts, and at the worst were... Chris, what's the term here?
16: Yeah, well, having your salad toss means having your asshole eaten out with jelly or sir. I prefer sir.
0: Right, all of which, according to the royal lawyers, was supposed to lead to a much more HBO-appropriate climax. Having thus entered the temple... Brothers
15: were obliged by their vows to have sex with one another, and this is why the wrath of God has fallen on these sons of infidelity. Sodomy, heresy, attacks on the image of Jesus Christ, and a dash of black magic, familiar charges
0: to anyone who had fallen foul of Philip IV of France to date. Okay, so the Templars were basically accused of being gay, which to a modern ear seems totally believable, given that we're dealing with a bunch of dudes in a period where homosexuality was not so much a normal sexual preference, but more of an invitation to gruesome state and church-sanctioned execution. And these dudes were given the opportunity to go thousands of miles from their homelands to live in a hostile territory in the company only of other men, far removed from normal social strictures. One would anticipate this state of affairs would attract some... Confirmed bachelors.
13: Covetousness,
6: I can never say that, lust, gluttony, envy, and sloth are collectively known as what?
0: Uh, the Bellarines.
7: <laughs> yeah, you would think.
0: But in point of fact, the Templars apparently took a hard line a stance against this sort of thing. So, while it seems obvious that the knights, like any group of people, probably had some gay members who probably got up to some down-low activities, the accusations of wild orgiastic sodomy appear to have been trumped up. Next on the docket?
7: Oh, just a little thing called renouncing Christ.
0: Yeah, this one's tricky. Based on the testimony of a number of knights...
7: Some derived from torture, some apparently not.
0: Part of the secret initiation ceremony involved spitting on the cross and swearing that the initiate rejected Jesus, the Trinity, the Virgin Mary, and all the other stuff that Orthodox Christians believed at the time.
7: That seems like a weird requirement for joining. What was the formal Templar title again?
0: Poor fellow soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Jerusalem. Yeah, admittedly, this is a tough one to parse, and maybe it was completely made up by Philip's unbelievably effective lawyers, but the sheer number and variety of similar testimonies arising from the trials of the Templars indicates that there was actually some there there. But what was that there, exactly? Those knights who were able to clarify their previous testimony in the presence of Pope Clement offered a strange, but to our ears, pretty plausible explanation for this seeming blasphemy—
7: Namely, they were practicing for the reasonable possibility that they would be captured in battle and forced to renounce their faith.
0: Remember, the Crusades were, above anything else, a war of opposing religious identities. And given that the whole point was meeting one's theological opponents on the field of battle, there was a decent chance that the Templars, who were naturally expected to be at the forefront of any Christian army arrayed against the Muslims, might end up captured by those forces. And in the event of a capture, it was fairly likely that they would be given a choice between renouncing Christ or facing the sword.
7: The Geneva Conventions wouldn't be ratified for another 700 years or so, and treatment of captured enemy soldiers was kind of left to the whims of the victorious commander.
0: So, in these Templars' versions, spitting on the cross and abjuring their faith was a means of toughening themselves up should they have to pretend to do those things in the future, in the hope of convincing their captors of their sincerity for long enough to escape and live to fight for the one true church another day as Spence puts it in his course notes.
7: By convincingly, but insincerely insulting Christ, they saved themselves but committed no sin.
0: Sure, this sounds weird to our ears. Why would you practice to convincingly forsake the religion that was the entire reason you became a knight in the first place? But there's another reason to think that the Templars may have come to this idea through their long presence in the Holy Land. That is, they spent significant time around the legendary sect of the Assassins. But don't believe us? Just ask Professor Spence.
8: Other factors that that influence, I think, the fascination with the Templars is their real connection with the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and with the nominally Muslim order of the assassins. They basically lived on opposite hilltops from each other in the same neighborhood for the better part of 200 years. There's recorded interaction. The Templars at one point were trying to get the Shiite assassins to, you know, kiss the cross supposedly they might have done it and others oppose that some people read a lot and that you know red and white were both their colors Idris Shah who's an Islamic scholar of some degree and also an earlier writer in secret societies brought up what I thought was an unprovable but intriguing idea that the assassins and the templars were manifestations of the same order in two different environments i don't think I buy that wholly, but I'm I'm not sure there isn't something to that.
0: We covered the assassins and their leader, the old man of the mountain, in depth in our Assassinations non-JFK edition a few years ago. But to flesh out the Templar story, we need to acknowledge that part of the reason that the Templars came under suspicion by certain observers in Christian Europe was because they had spent so much time associating with not just standard-issue Muslims of the Saladin Sunni variety— but also weird esoteric versions of that faith.
7: For example, the Sufis, and especially the Ismailis, which is what the assassins were called at the time. The Ismailis were in close contact with the Templars for decades, as they had been forced through military defeats to pay annual tributes to the order. Some scholars suspect that this close contact allowed the Templars to absorb some esoteric religious notions from the Ismailis, which the knights then applied to their particular brand of Christianity
0: author james wasserman goes further in the templars and the assassins the militia of heaven noting that the templars and other crusaders would also have encountered mystics fakirs zoroastrians gnostics sufis and buddhists which must have presented an almost overwhelming variety of religious experience to europeans raged in a largely homogeneous religious milieu Perhaps too confidently, Wasserman asserts that the more intelligent and spiritual knights would inevitably find Catholic dogma wanting in the face of these sophisticated Eastern religious concepts, leading to uncomfortable questions and eventually an undermining of the Templars' orthodoxy but let's bring our focus back to the assassins. In Islam, there's a well-established doctrine called Taqiyah, which explicitly allows the faithful to lie about their beliefs in order to save themselves in the face of persecution by non-believers. The Ismailis definitely adhered to this practice, and the idea that the knights could have picked it up from their enemies is pretty plausible. As we will see later, this connection with the more esoteric beliefs of the assassins, along with those of the Druze, Sufis, and other mystically inclined sects of the region, would feed strongly into conspiracist narratives of the Templars and their hidden knowledge and aims. Once again, we quote Umberto Eco's novel Foucault's Pendulum, in which a group of scholars reflect on the relationship, both real and imagined, of the Templars and the Assassins.
7: They were a little like the 19th century adventurers who went native and caught the d'Afrique. The Templars, lacking the usual monastic education, were slow to grasp the fine points of theology. Think of them as Lawrences of Arabia after a while start dressing like sheiks.
0: So the blasphemy against the cross may have been a reasonable explanation, at least for a group exposed to new ideas and operating in a hostile environment. But what about that weird idol-worship accusation? Certainly, it's the thing within the Templar testimony that is hardest to pin down. On the one hand, Dr. Spence says, there was a wide variety in terms of what exactly this Baphomet thing was that the knights were supposed to be illicitly worshipping. From his course notes.
7: The supposed idol, called Baphomet, was described as a human head, but occasionally as a cat. Some said it was a bearded man, some said a woman, and others said it had two faces or three. The idol supposedly had the power to grant protection, make land fertile, make trees grow, and find and guard riches.
0: And as Spence goes on to note, some conspiracists argue that it was this powerful idol, and not the Templar gold, that Philip was actually after. Regardless, Jones relates the testimony of one Templar who claimed to have experienced this idol worship along with a reasonable explanation for what it actually might have been. Hugh
15: described a head that had
0: four feet, two under the face
15: and two behind, that existed in Montpellier, which he had worshipped with his lips and not his heart, and then only in pretense. This idol sounded rather like a reliquary, one of those bejeweled caskets, often given human forms, in which scraps of saints' remains were kept for the purpose of perfectly orthodox
0: Catholic adoration. Exactly. Remember, it's not like all the knights and their attendants in the order were expert theologians, or even well-educated people, but most would have seen displays and veneration of the bodily remains of the saints of the faith, as well as the apostles of Jesus and other biblical figures, which were frequently placed into reliquaries, which in turn were often bejeweled and encrusted with gold, and then held up as objects of quasi-worship.
7: The fact that probably few or none of these supposed remains actually belonged to the bodies of those whom the church claimed they did was not super important at this time, given that smarty-pants scientific forensic techniques wouldn't arrive for hundreds of years. One finger bone was pretty much as good as another.
0: Right. So, these knights trying to recall events from years ago in foreign lands where they beheld and venerated strange objects, which might have been demonic idols or could have been totally legit Orthodox Christian saint reliquaries, ended up providing a very confusing and contradictory series of accounts that Philip and Co. skewed into pagan idol worship. And about that name, Baphomet is, these days, a real thing. Well, not a real real thing, but definitely a fake thing that some modern self-avowed Satanists have adopted as their own real weird thing.
7: You've probably seen pictures of this dude. It is a goat-headed god that happened to star in one of Jesuit's all-time favorite self-owns by a group of self-important assholes.
0: She's right. Digression time. Okay, way back in 2013, a group of Christian fundamentalists and their enablers in the Oklahoma legislature wanted to erect a Ten Commandments monument on the state capitol grounds. They were told by the courts that they could only do so if the money used to pay for that monument was donated by private citizens and groups.
7: Not a big fundraising problem for a Christian monument in Oklahoma, obviously.
0: But there was a second caveat, that the area in which the Erzatz decalogue was to be erected had to be open to any faith whose adherents were also able to raise the funds to build a monument of their own. I hope you can see where this is going.
14: Who would build a statue
0: to Satan? Well, it turns out a group of atheists wants to do exactly
11: that. The statue would be built in Oklahoma City, but there are some people here in Milwaukee who are raising money and awareness for the cause. I spoke with one of them tonight. Lucifer, the Prince of Darkness, is an image that many Satanists revere. The satanic temple based in New York now wants to build a seven-foot monument of Satan outside the state capitol building in Oklahoma City. We
17: have the uh, throne where children can sit on mm-hmm. and get their picture taken with it.
11: Brian Warner, who claims to be a satanic high priest living in Milwaukee, says the statue would be built next to an existing monument of the Ten Commandments.
18: The right wing religious majority have think monument that they have the right They to say it's only
9: fair because releases. of what Oklahoma lawmakers did in 2009. That's when lawmakers passed a bill allowing the Ten Commandments to be put on display on the grounds of the state capitol. The satanic group says that opened the door for them to display their monument as well because they're also considered a religion. Constitutional experts say if lawmakers allow one religious group to display a symbol of their faith on public property, denying another group's request to do the same could lead to a court battle.
0: Yeah, the Satanists demanded the right to put up a nine-foot statue of Baphomet, the goat god, teaching eager children about rationality.
7: It turns out that most self-described Satanists are just atheists who like pulling pranks on religious zealots who don't understand the separation of church and state.
0: The whole thing eventually ended with the fundies getting shot down by the state supreme court since they didn't want to share with the other religions.
7: Honestly, I don't see what this had to do with the trial of the Templars.
0: Oh, it has fuck all to do with that. I just can't resist a good digression, especially where, how did you put it? A group of self-important assholes pull a huge self-own. Yeah, I really dig that. Okay, back to the Templar-Baphomet discussion. Anyway, the goat-headed Baphomet was a 19th century design. So whatever the Templars thought they might have kind of sort of been venerating back in the 1200s, it definitely wasn't the Satanist goat dude. Dr. Spence has more.
8: The Baphomet thing, I mean, one, you can't even figure out what the word actually is. You know, the simplest explanation is that, well, I don't know, they couldn't pronounce Muhammad, so it came out Baphomet. That's simply based on the idea that to modern ears, Muhammad and Baphomet kind of look alike. Therefore, because they kind of look alike, that must have been what it is. But nobody nobody to me has ever given in anything more than that. You know, it's, it's a cat. It's a woman. It's, it's a two-headed – I mean, there's, there's nothing that looks like what is called Baphomet today. You know, that the thing that modern-day Satanists worship is Baphomet. Think of the goat-headed guy, you know, the hermaphrodite with the legs crossed. Okay, you know, the thing that everything today, if you go in and Google Baphomet, that's what will come up. That image doesn't even exist until the early 19th century. That image is a creation of Eliphas Levi in the early 19th century, and there's nothing that the Templars describe that could in any way be interpreted as that thing. This is where you can get the argument is that what was happening is that they were being pressured to come up with something so they would just invent a story. Uh, It was a cat. It was a two-headed cat. That was it. A possibility that can't be wholly discounted. if they prepared themselves in advance for what they might have to do to deceive their Muslim captors, could they also have taken the initiative to prepare themselves for what would happen if they should fall afoul of Christian interrogators? And thus... The idea was to, you know, either create something like Baphomet that meant nothing or to create something that gave, and then give different explanations for it, to, to give knowingly false testimony in order to cover up what you're up to.
0: I don't know. There were other charges against the Templars in addition to the ones we went over here, and the whole thing dragged on, as we noted earlier, for literally years. The political fight is pretty interesting. Michael Hagg's book does a great job explaining how the historical view of the struggle between King and Pope changed dramatically since 2001 after the discovery of new information in the Vatican archives. These new documents clarified how the Pope viewed the Templars' supposed heresies and how he was trying to deal with them. In spite of the confusion arising from the contradictory initial reports, once the Pope and his inquisitors were able to question the Templars out from under the watchful and torturing influence of Philip, some knights, including especially leader Jacques de Molay, immediately recanted, blaming their testimony entirely on torture.
14: On about 27th December 1307, the Cardinals met James of Molay and other leading Templars, who denied everything to which they had formerly confessed. According to one source, the Grand Master said that he had confessed only under heavy torture, and he showed the wounds on his body, though it is not clear if this source can be trusted. Nevertheless, retracting the confessions was a risky move, because under the rules of the Inquisition, relapsed heretics were handed over to the secular authorities to be burnt. That the Grand Master and others took that risk shows that they were confident that a great injustice was about to be overturned. Certainly, James and Molly's attraction marked a turning point in the trial.
7: Hark offers more details on the Pope's examination of the Knights.
14: The Templars were not heretics, Clement had decided. An account of the examination was kept in the form of marginal notes made at the time. Damaged and mislaid in the Vatican archives, these notes have only recently been discovered, deciphered and published. Together with the Chinon parchment, they show how the Pope came to understand the true nature of the Templars' strange practices. The Templars attended Mass, they went to Holy Communion and confession, and they complied with their liturgical duties. But they also confessed to the Pope that at their entrance ceremony they denied Christ and spat on the cross, though they insisted that they had never consented to this in their souls, and as soon as possible had confessed to a priest and asked for absolution. The Pope found these induction rituals too confused to be taken seriously. At one moment the novice spat on the cross, but then kissed it in adoration, and the novice denied the divinity of Christ, saying, You who are God, I deny, which was no denial at all. If the Templars were heretics, they were the most inconsistent and unconvincing adherents any heresy could have. The Templars had fallen into peculiar ways and needed reform. But that, decided the Pope, was all.
0: It turns out that not only did the Pope find the knights were innocent of heresy, but he had already heard about the weirder practices of the order from Jacques de Molay himself before the
14: arrests. In fact, Clement had already heard something of these bizarre practices from James de Molay himself, when the two met at Poitiers in May 1307, five months before the arrests. In the Pope's words, the Grand Master had told him of, quote, many strange and unheard-of things, which had caused Clement, quote, great sorrow, anxiety, and upset of heart. The Grand Master feared that these initiation ceremonies, which had been going on for a century or more, were getting out of hand, and the Pope agreed to instigate an inquiry to root out these practices before they erupted into scandal.
0: The order's leader had sought the pope's help in trying to reform these odd initiation rituals, which predated de Molay's tenure by a century or more. But while we now know that the pope had absolved the knights of the charge of heresy, that fact was inadvertently forgotten for more than 700 years.
14: Hogg explains. In the summer of 1308, the pope absolved James of Molay and the other Templar leaders held prisoner at Chinon. Seemingly, no proper report of this hearing had survived. Until recently it was doubted that any such event had taken place. That is, until the discovery of the Chinon parchment in the Vatican archives in 2001 and its publication by the Vatican in 2007. This showed unequivocally that despite the chief Templars being held prisoner by the king, a hearing had somehow been arranged within the royal castle at Chinon.
0: This so-called Chinon parchment in Hogsview puts to bed the question of the Pope's complicity in the order's dissolution. So it turns out the Pope, and therefore the Church, was not actually trying to destroy the order as Philip was. The papacy was beholden to Philip, certainly, but it seems that Clement was doing his best to shield the knights from the king's aims. However, it was not to be. All of this maneuvering transpired in the first months after the Templars' arrest. Jacques de Molay and three of the other Templar leaders were left in prison for another six years, until finally Philip, ignoring or perhaps obscuring the previous absolution issued by the Pope, Handed down what amounted to life sentences for all four. Two of them, de Molay and Geoffrey de Charnay, had had all they could stance,
2: I can't stand no
0: more, and vehemently refuted the charges. Because confession meant that you wouldn't be killed, but recantation was essentially an unavoidable death sentence in the ecclesiastical and legal logic of the time when it came to heresy, inevitably they were put to death on the 18th of March, 1314, burned at the stake.
2: Christian say through the world's stock exchange.
16: We control all the money. Dallas to Rome, Hollywood, Tokyo, London, Paris, and Beijing.
0: Now, hopefully, we all understand the contemporary political situation that led to the Templars' downfall. But what accounts for their incredible afterlife as the objects of obsessive interest by conspiracy theorists? We asked Dr. Spence what he made of this question.
8: So why is everybody so obsessed with the Knights Templar? And why do they seem to get worked into everything? I mean, well, you know, from being the, uh, somehow the origins of Freemasonry, or one of the possible origins of, of Freemasonry, to having supposedly buried a huge treasure in Nova Scotia. One of the things you can say about the Knights Templars is that there certainly was a conspiracy involved in the dissolution of the order, and the conspiracy was against them. You have the vacuum effect in these stories, which means there's not a lot really to go on, and therefore you can create different narratives. The Templar story is the the fall of this once great, powerful, rich, and respected order. There's a sort of morality tale, you know, that they rose to high hubris eventually uh, brought them down. The order may be numbered at most about 10,000 of all different groups in the the early 1300s. And it wasn't just composed of knights. The knights proper, the monastic warrior monks were maybe 10% of that. The organization is largely intact. A relative handful of people are actually put to death and Philip never actually gets his hands on the money. Now, was there a Templar treasure or was there not a Templar treasure? I don't know, and neither does anybody else for sure. The assumption is is that they had great wealth at one time, that they must therefore have had some, and if it doesn't pass into Philip's hands or the Pope's or someone else's, then what became of it? So you've got this vacuum. There's something that just sort of disappears and can't be explained, and then what people will do, what their minds will work overtime doing, is coming up explanations that will explain that vacuum, because we don't like them. We like the story to be complete. There could have been some vast Templar treasure that's still out there somewhere, so where could it be? Here you've got a monastic order, a fairly sophisticated machine that had functioned for a couple of centuries and had done quite well. So what's going to happen to it when it is outlawed? Not everywhere, by the way. Remember in places like Portugal, the Templars were never outlawed. They just went on about their business. What about in countries even like France where it was banned? Well, you still had this whole organization. Most of the people who are in it are still there. They may even have much of their money. Does everybody just go, oh, uh, well, I guess the jig's up. I guess I'll go somewhere else. Or... Does some portion of that organization preserve itself? Now, if you look at other examples, you tend to find that groups finding themselves in that situation that usually some portion of them will seek to reorganize.
0: So the head of the group was eliminated and the Templars were disbanded in France. But what happened everywhere else? Well, it depends where you're talking about. As Dr. Spence noted, in Portugal, essentially nothing happened to the Templars. This in spite of the fact that when he orchestrated his mass arrest, Philip actually hoped to crush them not just in France, but internationally. So he sent these accusations out far and wide to other rulers of Europe, many of whom saw clearly the political and financial motivations behind the arrests and show trials and didn't do much in response.
7: This was especially true in places like England, Scotland and Italy.
0: But ironically, Pope Clement's eventual involvement in the case and his attempts to wrest control over the Templars and their eventual fate from Philip made it religiously necessary that even these rulers eventually at least make token arrests of the Templars in their kingdoms. And when the Pope felt he had to dissolve the order, also as a result of these political power plays, that meant the order was at least nominally eliminated across Europe.
7: Though again, there were exceptions.
0: But However the various Templar groups in different nations ended up, the group was already legendary in their own time. As we discussed before, they were the inspiration for the noble knights we read about in such important texts of the period as Percival, the story of the Grail. Dan Jones discusses the popularity of the Templars in the literature of their era.
15: Even in their own day, the Templars were of vastly more interest to writers of fiction than the Hospitallers and Teutonic order. The Templars' rivals long outlasted them in both their martial and pastoral roles, but they have left nothing like the same impression in the popular imagination. No one, either in the Middle Ages or today, has seemed very interested in epic poetry, still less Hollywood movies, about the Teutonic Order or the Sword Brothers of Livonia. Only the Templars can really be said to have passed from the realm of reality into mythology and staked a place in the popular imagination. To be fair, the Templars were different from the other major international military orders. Uniquely, from the beginning they were knights who took up a religious calling, rather than servants of a hospital that added a paramilitary wing. This gave them a certain quality that was useful for medieval romance. They corresponded exactly to the archetype of the truly chivalrous men, violent but chaste, tough but pure of heart, merciless but godly. They were the ideal that all knights in Arthurian legend strove toward.
7: These early romances that cast the Templars in their stories were also the first connections between the Templars and the then newly created idea of the Holy Grail, which we'll be coming back to when we discuss the Cathars shortly.
0: But of course, we're not as interested in the incorporation of an idealized version of the Knights into the literature of their period as we are in the reasons why centuries of conspiracists have latched onto the story of the Knights with relentless ardor. And we know exactly where the conspiracy theories kick off, at the very site of De Molay's immolation.
19: The de Temple of the Gailliers Saints, formed in the Temple of Jerusalem in 1919, pour to protect the pèlerins in the desert. In their tunic blanche with des croix roses, ils ont the beautiful phases of the devenus incroyablement riches ont rich, la invented the la and the Banque Internationale Moderne. After the battle of Acre and the death of the Saints, De Molay was elected 23rd.
0: That rather over-the-top rendering of Demolay's death comes to us from a video game in the Assassin's Creed franchise, a long-running and very popular series in which the Assassins are the good guys, and the Templars are the evil, manipulative power brokers, working behind the scenes to increase their secret control over the world's people.
7: This is not in any way a historical version of the Templars, but we should at least thank heaven that the games maker Ubisoft chose a disbanded order of medieval knights as a conspiring manipulative force in their games instead of the standard conspiracist stand-in for oppression and evil,
0: the Jews. Stabby video game series aside, we included this rendition of de Molay's final words because his dying curse on the king and the pope has been a popular legend for hundreds of years now, though many contemporary, even first-hand accounts of the event, insisted the knight died in stoic silence. But the reason the curse allegation is so popular is that, in fact, the king and the pope were both dead within a year of Damolet meeting his fate.
7: Whether those deaths came after the curse, or the rumor of the curse came after the deaths is unclear. But we lean toward option two.
0: The pope had suffered from ill health for a while, so his death wasn't exactly surprising. But Philip was in excellent health, which he proved by going on a hunting trip, where he suffered a massive cerebral hemorrhage and croaked at the ripe old age of 46.
7: I get it. French king. Frog. Hilarious.
0: The legend of de Molay's curse, at least in one probably apocryphal story, would haunt the French monarchy for hundreds of years, culminating in this version quoted from Foucault's Pendulum.
7: One part of the legend insists that when Louis XVI was guillotined, an unknown man climbed onto the block and shouted, Jacques de Molay, you are avenged.
0: So we know the story of the Templars was still a going concern even in the late 18th century. But how did they go from being a controversial religious and military order to the master manipulators they play in so many conspiracy theories? Jones notes that most of this crankery is along the lines of what Dr. Spence has hipped us to previously. Essentially, it's based on incredulity. Over the past 200
15: years, the Templars have also provided rich material for cranks, conspiracy theorists, and fantasists there is a thriving industry in what-if history about the Templars, much of it resting on the false supposition that an order so wealthy and powerful could not simply have been rolled up and dissolved.
0: But certainly, there have been those whose thoughts on the Templars have been particularly impactful in moving the order to the top of the conspiracist hit parade. For example, Hogg points out that in the 16th century, scholar Henry Cornelius Agrippa wrote a highly influential and wildly popular book called De Occulta Philosophia Libri
7: i.e. the three books of occult philosophy.
0: The purpose of this book was to distinguish the good kinds of magic,
7: alchemy and such, that is, the kind of magic that a good Christian humanist of the Renaissance might want to pursue to the greater glory of God,
0: and the horrors of demonic black magic.
7: That is definitely spelled with a K at the end for extra evil points.
0: What's important for us here is the groups Agrippa included among those guilty of performing the bad stuff.
14: It is well known that evil demons can be attracted by bad and profane arts, in the manner in which Psellus relates that the Gnostic magicians used to practice, who used to carry out disgusting and foul abominations, like those formerly used in the rites of Priapus, and in the surface of the idol called Panor, to whom people used to sacrifice with their private parts bared. Nor were they much different, if what we read is truth and not fantasy, from the detestable heresy of the Templars. And similar things are known about the witches and their senile craziness in wandering into offences of this sort. By placing the Templars alongside witches as his two examples of perverted Christian magicians, Agrippa thrust the order into the phantasmagoria of occult forces which were the subject of persecuting craze, for which the Malleus Maleficarum was a handbook. Suddenly the Templars were raised from the depths of half-forgotten failures and became the focus of the darkest disturbing forces in the European mind its victims, or its masters. In this way, the Templars entered the Renaissance, and were to advance into the Age of Enlightenment."
0: This book's popularity brought the Templars back from temporary obscurity to widespread infamy. Another element of the story that has fed the fever dreams of conspiracists is the fact that, apparently, Philip IV never found the kind of treasure that he was really looking for after he raided the Templars' coffers. This of course leads to two kinds of speculation. Either the Templars themselves were not as wealthy as they had been assumed, or somehow the Templars' gold was secretly spirited away and hidden somewhere else. Mainstream historians try to consider this question on its merits. But where's the fun in that for pseudo-historian conspiracists? Trying to figure out how the Templars might have mismanaged and misspent their wealth? Or in analyzing whether or not their wealth was ever as great as everyone had supposed at the time?
6: Boring!
0: Right. So instead, the conspiracy theorists jump right on option two and start spinning various hypotheses, some reasonable, some less so, for the travels and eventual resting place of this presumably immense and definitely elusive treasure.
7: So where do they say it went?
0: One popular option is Scotland. The fictional narrator in Foucault's Pendulum synopsizes this idea.
7: There's a legend that says that two days before Philip issued the arrest warrant, an ox-drawn left the enclave of the temple in Paris for an unknown destination. They say that hidden in the wane was a group of knights led by one Oumon. These knights supposedly escaped, took refuge in Scotland, and joined a Masonic lodge in Kilwinning. According to the legend, they became part of the Society of Freemasons, who served as guardians of the secrets of the Temple of Solomon.
0: There are some genuine historical reasons why the Templars, had they been given the option, might have wanted to flee to Scotland. As we noted earlier, it was one of the places that was least hospitable to Philip's imperious demands that the Templars be arrested and prosecuted. But the main reason that theorists desperately want the heart of the Templar order to have re-emerged in Scotland are a. To lend credence to the supposed connections between the Templars and the Freemasons, a group generally acknowledged to have had their start in Scotland, and b. To support their conjectures about Rosslyn Chapel a church in Scotland. First, to the Masonic connection. As Dr. Spence already noted, there is indeed a link between the Masons and the Templars. Specifically, that link is the fact that so many Masons have asserted a link between the two groups, this in spite of a near total lack of historical evidence. Here, he sheds more light on the subject.
8: So you can't really prove that the Templars ever actually go out of business. Now, that doesn't mean that a couple of hundred years down the road, they reemerge as the Freemasons for some reason. But it does explain why someone could make that argument. I really can't see much connection between... In the Templar order and later Freemasonry itself, I I don't know where the kind of intellectual inheritance is supposed to come in. Then you've got people who will argue, well, the reason we don't recognize this is because, you know, the Templars do all kinds of cool stuff that they dug up in the Temple Mount, you know, where the Ark of the Covenant was and and everything else, and the secrets of the universe were theirs. Without saying that there is no link between Freemasonry and the Knights Templars, it, it still remains one that you can't actually prove. The most interesting thing about it, though, is why, by the 18th century, do so many Freemasons in Europe believe that they are connected?
0: He has more to say about the Templars and Masons, but we're going to save that for our discussions of the Freemasons later on.
7: Moving on, what's the deal with Rosslyn Chapel?
17: It is from the influence of the Knights Templar that many believe Masonry began to develop its modern philosophy a philosophy literally carved in stone and found in one of the most intriguing monuments of the Western world. Just outside of Edinburgh, Scotland, is the Rossland Chapel, a place that may well provide a door to understanding Masonry, the Knights Templar, and the ancient plan for America. It very conclusively demonstrates a profound relationship between uh, Scotland and the Templars and the Freemasons, uh, which is not really any big revelation. Um, but of course, the whole idea is that is that the three things go together. The chapel was built in the 15th century by William Sinclair. The tomb of his ancestor of the same name, and who died a century earlier, is found within. His name, as it appears, William St. Clair, Knight Templar, is believed to be a link between the Templars and the Scottish Masons who built this mysterious chapel. The legacy of Rosslyn Chapel seems to be the very essence of the Templar belief and that of secret
0: societies everywhere. This chapel, which was built by a Freemason whose ancestor, entombed on site, was a Knight Templar, is supposedly the clinching proof that the still-active Templars were the animating force behind the rise and spread of Scottish Freemasonry and its creed of tolerance across Europe.
7: But I'm presuming it doesn't mean that?
0: Not really. I mean, it's possible the descendants of some of the Scottish Templars were involved in the very earliest stirrings of what would eventually become Freemasonry. But we're talking literally hundreds of years between the disappearance of one and the full flowering of the other, so we're probably not warranted in taking those leaps. And, of course, just because a Templar is buried in a chapel doesn't mean that said chapel is inherently connected to the Templar order.
17: As we walk through it, it's very probable that the Masons who built it had a field day. Uh, They decided that they were going to combine all kinds of uh, mythological elements along with the Bible. So you have uh, Masonic elements in the chapel, you have some pagan elements, you have Christian elements. And they're all thrown together. Roslyn Chapel is probably one of the most extraordinary buildings in the world. Uh, it is like a Disneyland of Masonry and Rosicrucianism. I
0: think the, cha- the profusion of religious symbology and strange adornments in the church is, of course, catnip to those who would prefer to speculate wildly about the Templars, the Masons, or other conspiracy-friendly topics. But no matter how much people have squinted at these symbols, no one has ever managed to use them to find the hidden link between the Masons and the Templars, nor for that matter, the supposed hoard of hidden Templar Gold.
19: The last meters, the of With 16 ships, La première étape du plan diabolique du roi Philippe a été de forcer le pape Clément V à déplacer la papauté à Poitiers, ce qui a fait.
7: But if the treasure isn't in Scotland, where could it possibly be, eh?
0: Why, Dana, I think your incredibly accurate accent gives it away. Another place where devotees of the Templar mysteries believe the supposed treasure ended up is on Oak Island, Nova Scotia, Canada.
7: Oh, yeah, oh, sir.
0: Yeah, indeed. Dan Jones introduces us to the idea. One of the
15: supposed Templar survivalist bolt holes, Oak Island in Nova Scotia, has been put forward as a possible location for the Order's lost treasure. It has also been linked with evidence proving the true authorship of Shakespeare manuscripts the location of Marie Antoinette's jewellery, and the hidden archives of a secret society of Rosicrucians led by Sir Francis Bacon. Needless to say, no Templar treasure has yet been discovered.
0: As you might expect, our first move upon learning the legends of the Templar treasure in the Great White North was to turn to our old standby YouTube to try to dig up some credulous videos made by yokels who had bought into this idea hook, line, and sinker.
7: And certainly he found some of that.
0: But then, something magical happened. You see, every so often in this, are we calling it a job? You stumble upon a project that you never knew existed, and yet, in spite of your ignorance, this project has labored for years, creating a frankly astonishing amount of content for you to peruse when you finally discover it.
7: Jesuit, what the fuck are you talking about?
0: Dana, I give you the History Channel's The Curse of Oak Island. There is an island
17: in the North Atlantic where men have been looking for treasure for more than 200 years. So far, they've uncovered booby-trapped flood tunnels, carved stones with strange symbols, 17th century Spanish coins, and evidence of a wooden vault covered in concrete. Six men have even lost their lives trying to solve the mystery. And, according to legend, one more will have to die before the treasure can be
7: found. You're saying there's a whole documentary dedicated to this bullshit?
0: Fuck a documentary, this shit has been on for eight goddamn seasons. Did we watch the whole thing? Hell no. What part of the phrase eight seasons make you think we have time for that? But from our cursory review, it focuses on two treasure-hunting brothers who are absolutely convinced, in spite of a distinct paucity of evidence and the fact that people have been looking for a treasure here unsuccessfully for several hundred years, that there's still a big old pile of gold buried somewhere on this unassuming island. And they're not just looking for Templar treasure either. They also think Captain Cook, among others, may have left their riches here. We did manage to find a clip specifically related to the Templars, and once again, the podcasting gods smiled upon us because not only were they seeking the knight's treasure in this episode, but they were joined by the Canadian patron saint of overacting and magnificent hairpieces.
6: Tell me what you found that's important enough to rewrite history. That? that. What? That. Yeah. That medieval cross. Give me the cross. This has been ascertained to have antiquity, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. 1400. Is that correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. This is around 600 years old. Well, it was mined 600 years ago. Where was it mined? South of France, best we know okay, at wait, this juncture. South of France? Yes. So that doesn't mean that this was here 600 years ago. No. It was no. in France 600 years ago and arrived here at an undetermined date. Of course. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, was this found underground? It's found in Smith's Cove. There's yeah. the man who phoned it. With your shovel, you were able to uh, uncover it. Oh, That's my. right, bitches.
0: Captain Kirk is helping these motherfuckers find the Templar gold.
7: Which gold, we should note, is still, as of this recording, apparently non-existent.
0: Ah, well. But the Templar influence in the modern world goes well beyond mere treasure hunting. For example, let's take, oh, say, the Mexican drug war. <laughs>
7: A drug cartel's first message, foreshadowing the violence to come. It says we killed him because he was a kidnapper. Signed, the Knights Templar. The drug gang gets his name from the Templar Order of the Middle Ages, a Christian military organization which protected Jerusalem. The modern-day version Templars have all the markings of a secret society and a dark track record. There's evidence of initiation rituals and blood pacts. Its hitmen have commandments like protect the community and keep all activities secret, or their families will be killed.
19: Their stronghold.
0: That's right. One of the violent narco gangs that have turned large parts of that country into a nightmarish shooting gallery named itself after the Knights Templar, trying to set themselves apart from the other gangs with a printed code of conduct that was supposed to ensure better behavior by the Templar gang's enforcers than was exemplified by rival groups.
7: For example, they abjured killing women and children. Supposedly. For a while.
0: Seem like super nice dudes. And the affectation of connection to the legendary Templars went beyond pseudo-chivalrous codes of conduct. Gang members spent money building statues depicting their leaders dressed up in full Templar armor, had full-sized replica swords forged, and invested in all kinds of other crusades-inspired bling. Their leader was eventually captured.
11: Mexican authorities have captured the country's most wanted drug lord, Servando Gomez, known as La Tuta, meaning the teacher. The 49 year old drug kingpin was a leader of the Knights Templar cartel, operating out of one of the country's most dangerous states, Michoacan.
0: And the remaining commanders were killed back in 2017, so they're not still a going concern, but weird story, right? Unfortunately, the list of violent sociopaths who've glommed onto the Templar name in the modern era doesn't end with the narcos either. I'm sure you remember the horrific crimes of Anders Breivik, the Norwegian mass murderer who killed 90 innocent people when he set off a bomb and then gunned down teenagers and young adults for the crime of attending a left-wing summer camp. In his inevitable manifesto, and in his defense at trial, Breivik made frequent references to his work helping to found the modern-day resurgence of the Knights Templar, this version having been developed as a leaderless network of right-wing activists opposing the creeping Islamification of Europe, or some shit.
7: Didn't you say he shot a bunch of white nominally Christian Norwegian kids?
0: Yes, he did, and was super proud of himself for doing so.
7: But he did it to oppose Islam?
0: Yeah, I mean, the guy's a self-important, pig-ignorant, violent piece of shit who deserves to rot, and we hate even bringing up his name, but somehow he believed shooting the left-wingers would help the cause of getting Norwegians to oppose Islamic immigration? Or something? Look, in addition to his many other failures, he isn't much of a thinker. Regardless, Breivik's actions were so obviously horrendous that even other loons who claimed to be part of this international anti-Islam Knights Templar network were very eager to avoid being associated with him in any way.
20: He's the self-styled leader of the Knights Templar based on medieval Christian crusades to the Holy Land. He's a founding member of the Anti-Islamic English Defense League. Paul Ray's blog posts about the threat from Islamic fundamentalism have been highlighted as a possible inspiration for Anders Breivik's manifesto. It was published online to justify the killing of more than 70 people in Norway last month. Ray, an Englishman who now lives in Malta, says he finds it hard to see how his writings could be linked to the massacre.
9: If I had have influenced him, there is no way he would have gone out and killed nearly 100 innocent children. If I'd have influenced him, I could understand if he'd have targeted Muslim fundamentalists. I could understand that and I could make a parallel. doesn't justify it, but I can understand it. But to have done what he did has no bearing on anything I ever say at all.
20: Ray, who left the UK 18 months ago to escape possible charges of stirring up racial hatred, says he rejected a Facebook request from Breivik because he didn't like the look of him. He says he has nothing to hide over his links to a mass killer.
19: The police here. <laughs> Torturés à faire votre aveux, de convoitis homosexuels contre nature, de corruption, de culte du diable et d'hérésie, le roi ordonna que 54 Templiers soient brûlés sur le bûcher. Philippe a ordonné deux monnaies, trois autres d'être immolés sur un échappe d'âge, sur les deux jambes. Les derniers mots de Jacques de monnaie depuis son rocher de étaient que dans un
7: Wonderful. Are there any positive images associated with the Templars?
0: Well, they do play a major role in that Assassin's Creed game series we mentioned earlier.
7: But you said they're the bad guys there, right?
0: Kind of, but that series is all over the place. It's more like the Templars represent the forces of order, whereas the Assassins are seeking more individual freedom. There are some Templar heroes over the course of the Hylian Jillian games they've put out as well. The main reason we're mentioning it, though, is because if you've heard of the Knights Templar before this series, it's very likely that's either because you've played these games or because you've made the horrendous mistake of reading or watching The Da Vinci Code, which we will be discussing at length a little later. Suffice it to say, your time would be better spent playing the games, even the shitty ones. As we noted, this connection between the historical Ismaili assassins and the historical Knights Templar is even stronger in more modern depictions of the two groups than was the case historically. Of course, some disagree. In his book, James Wasserman asserts that the similarity of their structure as rigidly hierarchical religious orders, both devoted to armed struggle for the glory of their versions of God, made the Templars virtually a European cultural reflection of the Assassins. And that the contact between the groups is a primary cause of the Templars' adaptation of seemingly heretical practices. Going further, he sees the esoteric practices and beliefs returned to Europe by the Templars and other Crusaders as the eventual basis for the rise of hermetic and occult practices in Europe in the succeeding centuries. Is this a stretch historically? Almost certainly. But it accurately reflects the outsized roles that both groups have maintained among those who choose to follow a version of history that makes esoteric practices central.
7: In other words, among conspiracy-friendly researchers.
0: Leaving behind these contemporary examples of how the Templars continue to influence culture and conspiracy theorists, we come to the first flowering of a strain of thought we'll be revisiting throughout this series. The variety of conspiracy theorists for whom the Templars are merely one of the threads of a plot that stretches back to deepest antiquity and which involves essentially all of the secret societies we'll be examining in one way or another. This is the overarching world-historical plot that Echo's heroes are seeking to map out in Foucault's Pendulum. And the Templars are the cornerstone, as one character posits.
7: Suppose the Templars had a plan to conquer the world, and they knew the secret of an immense source of power, a secret whose preservation was worth the sacrifice of the whole Temple quarter in Paris.
0: But what could such a plan entail? Basically, everything, as Michael Hogg explains further.
14: The blockbuster Templar plot draws loosely on history and myth. Here are some of the more crucial ingredients. James de Molay, Jacques de Molay, is a hero. Stephen Berry in the Templar legacy dares to suggest that the last Grand Master broke under torture, although to compensate he says it is James of Molay's image on the Turin shroud. But most of the time, Molay is so brave and far sighted that it is a mystery how he failed to handle King Philip. The Templars have secret knowledge. What they know varies, but it is often suggested that in the Holy Land they became acquainted with some profound esoteric wisdom. After hobnobbing with their Muslim opponents, for example, a Templar killing of an assassin envoy becomes a thread with which the most elaborate fantasies can be spun. The Templars crisscross the globe: Scotland, Paris, New York, Israel, the Long Dock, Turin, Copenhagen. No place on earth is safe as these complex plots unravel as surrogate travelogues. A modern-day Templar geek is usually a villain, just like Salih Tebing in the Da Vinci Code and the less eccentrically monikered, Vance Williams, in Curious, The Last Temper. Popes are devious, and none more so than Leo X, 1475-1521, to 1521, who is forever quoted as saying, It has served us well, this myth of Christ. In fact, this remark was put into the Pope's mouth by John Bale, 1495-1563, to 1563, a rabidly anti-Catholic propagandist. Heresy and Satanism make good copy especially the Templars' supposed worship of an antichrist called Baphomet. The Templars still exist, and they are behind everything. Jones
0: also issues his own searing dismissal of this strain of thinking. Alternative histories
15: have been concocted, suggesting an outlandish post-history. Did a small group of Templars escape persecution in France? Could they have sailed from La Rochelle with a stash of treasure? If so, Did that include the Turin Shroud or the Ark of the Covenant? Did the Templars set themselves up as a secret organisation elsewhere? Are they still out there, running the world from the shadows? One needs no more than an internet connection and an imagination to find the theories that have been piled onto this platform of speculation, including the notion that the Templars were the keepers of a real-life Holy Grail, be that an actual cup or a metaphor for some ancient truth that they had inherited their role of guardians of the truth from the Cathars, the collective name for heretics in southern France persecuted to obliteration in the early 13th century, and that this was what lay behind their downfall.
0: But how fair would it be if we didn't offer a more credulous alternative to our hard-nosed historian's dismissal of grand conspiracy claims relating to the Templars? And conveniently, we have a subscription to Amazon Prime Video.
7: Slogan Our platform plays host to a shocking number of irresponsible pseudo-documentaries.
0: Well, they really outdid themselves with a banger that we found, titled Solomon's Temple Revealed, Secrets of the Templars. Our expectations upon viewing this piece of shit were minimal, but we at least anticipated some fun visuals. Instead, this doc, which, given the low standards of Prime Video reviewers, is still only able to scrounge up one star... Anyway, it follows this guy around as he wanders around museums, showing shakily shot close-ups of various religious and ancient images, all the while narrating an indecipherable argument about how the Templars and their fall were connected to a series of stake cults that worship ancient wisdom. Only the whole thing is a lot less fun than that description makes
10: it sound. And the question has always been, why? What was it that the Templars saw in the Temple of Jerusalem that so inspired them? In the preceding years following the return of certain Templars from the Middle East, we have an upsurge in what is known today as Gothic architecture. Before this period, churches were mainly small, often wood. Suddenly, with the inspiration gathered from the Middle East, the various monastic orders, and generally led by the Templar-linked Cistercians of Europe, Europe was awash with building fever with over 80 cathedrals being built between 1128 and 1228 in France alone. All of these buildings had or have a Gnostic and mystical influence with hidden symbolism rife within their stonework and giving rise to the great Freemasons. It is an accepted fact that the Templars were instigators in the rise of these Masons and it is the Masons who hid the profound wisdom in the stones. Another amazing coincidence is, that suddenly at this time in Europe, sees a rise in alchemical, astronomical, medical, and philosophical texts, all of this running parallel to each other. The temple then, was not made for one God, but for numerous gods, and anyone who wished to worship their own God was in the right place regardless. This was a place of union, a joining of the opposite seen in the Kundalini experience, where the male and female, positive and negative, are joined to bring about true illumination. And of course, during the Crusader period, there was not one depiction of the crucifixion on any of the buildings he erected, backing up the claim that the Templars denied the crucifixion. It is thought that the Templars and the Cistercians found a wealth of ancient manuscripts containing secrets, giving them an insight into the truth behind Christianity. One thing that did emerge was the cult of the Baphomet, the head and Sophia, the elements of serpent wisdom. If they discovered the Holy Grail, as many have said, then the secrets of the Grail were what they truly discovered. So far, we have seen that the true temple must not be touched by hand, that Moses was an emergent serpent from Egypt, and that Hiram, the exalted head or snake, was the master of balance.
7: I think I got a perfect soundtrack idea for this guy.
0: Dana, you're better than that. I'm not, but you are. Okay, we're about ready to move on from the Templars, but in doing so, we need to come back to two elements of the Templar story. The first is, as we previously mentioned, legend and literature have linked the Templars to the Holy Grail. The other is, the Templars are also connected to the Shroud of Turin, a piece of cloth believed by some to be the burial shroud of Christ, but believed by those who understand carbon dating to be a medieval forgery. This sounds like the kind of thing that would have been totally ginned up by the conspiracists to keep things interesting. Legendary knights put in charge of a priceless relic, etc. Which makes it all the more fascinating when Mr. Hogg points out, per documents provided by the Vatican itself, the Templars were indeed in charge of protecting the Shroud.
14: The Turin Shroud is claimed to be the linen cloth that covered the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. A relic, answering to its description, was among the treasures that were taken from Constantinople and the city was sacked by the Fourth Crusade in 1204. But the certain provenance of the Shroud can only be traced back to 1357, when it was displayed in the church at Lyre in the Diocese of Troyes by the widow of a French knight called Geoffrey of Charnay, who, it is said, was the nephew of that same Geoffrey of Charnay, burnt at the stake with James of Molay. This has led some historians to believe that after the sack of Constantinople, the linen relic passed into the hands of the Templars, who took it to France, where it formed part of their famous treasure. But is this true? Remarkably, in April 2009, support came from the Vatican itself, where Barbara Frale, the scholar who discovered the Chinon parchment, found a further document. This won the testimony of Arnaud Sabatier, a young Frenchman who entered the order in 1287. As part of his initiation, he said, he was taken to, a secret place to which only the brothers of the Temple had access, where he was shown a long linen cloth on which was impressed the figure of a man, and was told to venerate the image by kissing its feet three times. The Templars had rescued the Shroud to ensure that it did not fall into the hands of heretics, but it does suggest that the cloth today known as the Turin Shroud, fake or not, was in the possession of the Templars, that they believed it to be real. In the first century, it played a central part in their initiation ceremonies.
0: But protecting
14: it from whom?
0: Well, it turns out the Templars intersect with both the Grail legend and the Shroud of Turin in relation to a sect of legendary heretics who have their own vital place in the history of secret society conspiracies. The French religious group who called themselves the Good Men, but whom everyone else knows as... We- Cathars. So,
7: first things first. Who the hell were these Cathars? How did they constitute a secret society? What happened to them? And how do they connect to the Knights Templar?
0: Now hold your horses there, Dana. You're getting ahead of yourself.
7: You wrote that line and had me read it.
0: It's okay. I don't blame you for being excited. You are
7: impossible.
0: Wow. Dana's really eager to start talking about how the Cathars fit into the overarching Templar conspiracy. But first we need to know why these good men, or good Christians, were considered a major heretical threat to the Orthodox Christianity of the period.
7: When he says Orthodox in this section, he's using the one with a little o, indicating the mainstream European Christian church of the time, the one that we now call the Roman Catholic Church. He's not saying the big o Greek Orthodox Church. Capitalization turns out to be a bit to explain by audio, but if we don't use the term orthodox, then we have to keep saying mainstream church throughout the section as a contrast to the heretical Cathar movement, and that can start to feel repetitive.
0: That may be our most Baroque over-explanation to date, but it's true. In the 12th through 14th centuries, there was only one Christian church whose theology ruled the day in Europe.
7: It's completely different these days. Most European countries are home to a huge variety of Christian churches, which are nearly empty because everyone's an atheist.
0: Of course, we're focused on a period when the church was as close to all-powerful as any institution in history. In fact, for the preceding several centuries, the Christian church was remarkably theologically docile. Everybody took their spiritual cues from the Holy See in Rome.
7: This period is also known as the Dark Ages.
0: That's... True, but modern scholars think that terminology is basically a slur on the era. It's fair to say that there was much more moving and shaking in, for example, the Middle East and China during the period. But even so, it's weird to call several hundred years dark just because white historians over-rotate on whatever Europe was doing in a given time frame. Which during this era was not much, in terms of scientific, economic, or cultural advancement. But it would be like saying the NBA was terrible over the past 40 years because the Knicks can't get it together.
7: How confident do you feel about that sports analogy?
0: Confidence level? Zero. But suck it, Knicks
7: fans! Uh, The breaking news from here is
0: that no matter what the Knicks do, they will suck for my entire life. (laughs) Now that we understand the grip the church had over medieval Europe, we then have to ask, what was the Cathar heresy and why was it a big deal? As straniacs, you know what's coming before we get to the actual history, we first have to deal with the most basic questions that underpin this situation. In this case, that's the philosophical and theological conundrum known as the problem of evil. Here we'll let the video on this subject from Crash Course Philosophy's YouTube channel set the table for why this is such a big issue for all of your major monotheisms.
18: Many theists believe in an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent God. But atheists argue that this creates a contradiction, a set of beliefs that can't all be true at the same time. Because evil is bad, right? Whether it's stubbed toes, or genocide, or paper cuts, or epidemics. So if there's really an all-knowing God out there, he knows about all the evil. He might even know about it before it happens. And if he's all-powerful, he could stop it. And if he's all-good, then he would want to stop it. And yet he doesn't. The evil continues. Philosophically rational people shouldn't hold inconsistent beliefs. So. Atheists argue that you're going to have to give something up and the thing to give up is God. Some theists, however, take a different route. They choose to give up one or more divine attributes. They argue that maybe God isn't powerful enough to stop evil, or maybe he's not knowledgeable enough to know about it, or maybe he's not even good enough to care about stopping it. Still, despite this scriptural evidence, many theists are committed to God's omni attributes and are thus stuck with a the problem. They have to resolve the logical problem of evil and find some way to explain why God would allow evil into the world.
0: As you might expect, this scenario has, in turn, led to all kinds of efforts on the part of belief. to provide sensible responses. In fact, there has been so much brain power devoted to arguing about this topic over the centuries that there's a special name for these apologetic arguments, theodicy. So you can bet that we've heard some pretty well-thought-out explanations for why an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent god might have created a world in which incredible evil could still be perpetrated. Most of these arguments revolve around free will. That is, it's more important to God that humans have total freedom to act as they choose, because only freely chosen good deeds can possibly be truly good. And that makes sense as far as it goes, until you consider that means that it's so important that humans are able to execute their free wills that it's worth the brutal torture-murder of countless human beings, including children, over the past several hundred thousand years of human existence and evolution.
7: Jesus, Jesuit, that's fucking dark.
0: Hey, it's not my idea take it up with the apologists. So, these sorts of arguments have been refined over the centuries, but they were already being used in similar form to explain the existence of evil in the world back in the 12th and 13th centuries. And, as you might assume, even then, plenty of other thinkers brought up issues with these purported solutions. For example... One? The free will argument fails to address the issue of natural evils, that is, all of the many non-human sources of seemingly endless suffering in the world. Earthquakes, raging wildfires, mudslides...
7: (laughs) That's just in California. Is this thing on? Thank you. You're a great audience. Try the veal.
0: Tsunamis, volcanic eruptions, poisonous snake bites, etc. These aren't caused by humans and therefore don't implicate free will. Two. Most people, religious apologists included, prefer to be on the side of an argument that isn't justifying the existence of child murder. We'll save further developments on this topic and how neuroscience is messing with the traditional parameters of the free will debate for some other show down the line. What we want to focus on here is the fact that, in the case of Christianity, addressing the problem of evil and what it means for our conceptions of God has been an issue from the very beginning, and different answers to that question have led to important doctrinal arguments that, in the worst instances, have eventually resulted in bloodshed.
7: I don't like how this is sounding for the Cathars, whom I believe you already mentioned aren't really around much anymore.
0: Again, Dana, jumping the gun. And don't go blaming the script for your being a walking spoiler alert. But, but... Noting that it's difficult for anyone who believes in an omnipotent, all-knowing, all-good god to explain the existence of evil, Jonathan Sumption, in his excellent book, The Albigensian Crusade...
7: Wait, I thought these were the Cathars. Why is the war against them called the Albigensian Crusade?
0: Because the heresy was particularly popular in the city of Albi, and that led to some using the name of that city for the whole movement. Anyway, Sumption notes that this issue in particular makes those who professed a dualist philosophy…
7: That is, a view that sees there as being two all-powerful entities. The good one who created the spiritual realm, and the evil one who created the material world that we all experience.
0: Yeah, folks who believed that were uniquely threatening to the then unquestioned and presumably unquestionable Catholic Church, because the dualists had a very simple theological solution to the problem of evil.
11: God
7: was not the creator of the world. All matter was the creation of the demiurge, a spirit of evil, autonomous, self-creating, who made man in his own likeness. God had implanted in man the consciousness of good, thus enabling him to save himself. But he could not control the material world. And to that extent, God was not omnipotent.
0: Clearly, for the dualist, if man was to return to his true father in the real heaven, then he would stay as far from the material world as possible, making himself ever more spirit and ever less a physically instantiated being.
7: So people decided on this dualist philosophy around the 12th century when the church started gearing up for their anti-heretic crusade.
0: Oh, shit, no. The beginning of this belief, which, again, we have to emphasize, is only considered a heresy because most Christian believers of the time ended up aligned against it. Anyway, the most important promoter of this dualist philosophy in early Christianity, Marcion, was a rich shipowner in Asia Minor.
7: That is, modern-day Turkey.
0: Who organized an early Gnostic church around his teachings by the year 144. As is typical of dualists throughout Christian history, Marcion's followers rejected the Old Testament as the scripture of the followers of the evil god of this world. But more importantly, and again in keeping with future dualists like the Cathars, they wanted as little to do with the gross material of this world as possible, meaning they rejected both marriage and sexual intercourse as sinful because they tied believers to their filthy material bodies and eventually led to the creation of new, baby bodies. Now, if you're trying to create a successful Christian group, there's a lot to be said for the seriousness and asceticism of Marcion's approach. But that last bit we mentioned contains the philosophy's Achilles' heel, to wit.
7: If you're in the middle of a theological conflict, and the other side encourages making babies, and your side discourages it, you're going to end up with a lot fewer followers as the decades pass.
0: Marcion and the other Gnostics,
7: whose full theology of dualism and rad names for spiritual beings like Yaldabaoth, we covered in the Reality Part 2 Philip K. Dick episode
0: eventually lost the theological struggle on both the disputative and procreative sides, as far as we know, without any internecine violence, probably because they only duked this out in opposing religious tracts. At the time, no sect of Christianity could trot out an army to bolster its arguments and smite the unbelievers. The same was not true for the Manichaeans, the next major dualist heresy, which was extant in the early 5th century CE, and which famously was the first theology embraced by Augustine of Hippo, before his conversion to mainstream Christianity and his subsequent posthumous elevation to Saint Augustine. Once he switched sides, Augustine became one of the greatest theological scourges of his initial faith, which was based on the teachings of a Persian named Mani. Mani taught that the world was, in the dualist tradition, ruled by a non-omnipotent but good god and an evil devil who created and ruled the material world. Mani differed from Marcion and other Christian Gnostics by incorporating Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, and other beliefs into his worldview. He also suggested that each of these faiths, as well as Christianity, was incomplete.
7: Let me guess whose ideas would bring these other faiths to completion?
0: Exactly. Manny was a final revelation prophet, much like Muhammad and Joseph Smith after him. But importantly, he also didn't completely disdain the physical world the way the Marcionists and other Gnostics did. Rather, he focused on the struggle between light and dark within each human body and soul, as well as within the material that made up the external world.
7: But the Manichaeans got wiped out too?
0: Oh, fuck yeah. From their inception in the 3rd century, they were persecuted first by the Persians, then by the pagan Roman Empire, then by the Christian church via the authority of the Christianized Roman Empire, and by the 6th century, they were no longer a going concern. From then until the 11th century, the Christian world was fairly united theologically, though of course there were small pockets of dualism and other heresies popping up here and there. By the time that these groups began to take hold in Christian Europe and came to the attention of the authorities in the mid-12th century, as Malcolm Lambert notes in his book The Cathars,
7: Leading churchmen in Western Europe had no living experience of heresy. The only heresies to be found were either the work of individual theologians or the casual idiosyncrasies of rustic preachers with no theological training.
0: Jonathan Sumption, in his Albigensian Crusade, piles on.
7: There was no clearly defined crime of heresy, no judicial principles from which to seek guidance, no procedures, and no prescribed penalties.
0: And so the local clergy, confronted with theological opposition to the faith, turned to the consolation that pedantic members of the ruling ideology have taken refuge in since time immemorial. That is, the belief that,
7: the most obdurate heretic would ultimately yield to recent argument.
0: But here's where the theological rubber hits the materialist road. Most of the clergy who were in a position to argue against the dualist heresy that was infiltrating Europe, and particularly southern France, weren't prepared to counter the learned and erudite arguments of the Cathar perfects because it had been centuries since training to debate and defeat heretics had been an important part of priestly education.
7: It's like how the Defense Against the Dark Arts curriculum at Hogwarts really hit the skids after Tom Riddle got blowed up by the mom-loved lightning bolt on Harry's forehead. As the threat fades, training fades with it.
0: Indeed. As Sumption notes, the rare instances of dualism over several centuries before the rise of Cathars weren't even catalogued or categorized by religious authorities. Heresy as a whole was so rare that heretics who had never even heard of Manny and probably weren't dualists to start with were labeled Manichaeans because nobody knew any other word that meant what we think of as heretic. As Sumption outlines, the heresy quietly infiltrated Europe as dualist Armenian colonists were moved into the Balkans by the Byzantine Empire in the 8th century. So that by the ninth century, heretical missionaries had taken root in Bulgaria, a region that at that point had only recently been converted to Christianity of the Eastern variety. The leader of this movement was a priest named Bogomil, who came to embrace a dualist philosophy that traced its theology back to the Apostle Paul rejecting the Old Testament and ascribing the material world to the creation of Satan. Moreover, his followers wouldn't eat meat or milk, considered the cross a symbol of mistaken focus on Christ's death instead of his ministry as the center of Christian belief, and refused all Christian sacraments, including the Eucharist. Professor Spence takes it from here.
8: But further east, in Bulgaria, Serbia, in the Byzantine territories, then you have the emergence of the Bogomils. And the Bogomils are just the Cathars under a different name. And they are connected with each other. Sometime in the 11th century, there is someone who's a kind of a grand poobah, and no one knows exactly what he was Father Nicetus, who comes from Constantinople, where he is the head of this Bogomil church. And he comes to Italy and he holds an entire sort of synod with other Cathar bishops, and they take instructions from him. The Cathars in France and Italy were only part of what was a conscious, Counter church that stretched all the way from Constantinople to southern France. And one of the things that Nicetus did is that he consecrated and reconsecrated Cathar bishops, basically by telling some of them that your consecration was wrong, so I'm going to tell you how to do it right. The Cathars, the Bogomils, what this group was, it was a kind of invisible counter church with its own bishops, its own hierarchy, its own holy books, its own theology. And remember, what its theology said was that the Roman Catholic Church was the synagogue of Satan, that it was a false church that was devoted to the evil God, that its wealth showed that it was a manifestation of the corrupt material world, and therefore everything it stood for was evil. It's not like they're going to have a dialogue. It wasn't as if you were going to have Cathar bishops and Catholic bishops set down, and we will all have a conclave, and we'll talk out our differences and come up with, no, it was on opposite ends of things. From the Cathar perspective, the Catholic Church was simply an evil, misbegotten institution, the creation of an evil God in an evil world. And to the Roman Catholic Church, the Cathars were a dangerous, deconstructing heresy that threatened everything the Church stood for, its very existence in every sense. And it was popular. That's the other thing, it was drawing people in.
0: Conveniently for the heretics, the portion of modern-day France they settled into was particularly blasé about heretical ideas. While these days the Toulouse region is integrated into the mainstream of French society, at the time it was considered a unique locale with its own language, customs, and a distinct way of life. Languedoc was more rural, Mediterranean, and less regimented or bureaucratic than the lands ruled by the French king. By the mid-12th century, it was clear that some dangerous teaching was circulating in this area. In 1145, St. Bernard of Clairvaux,
7: That's the dude whom the closest listeners among you will recall was the church patron who won for the Templars not only the support of the papacy, but also the group's total independence from all authority, save their own Grandmaster and the Pope himself.
0: Yes, that very same Templar benefactor and leader of the Orthodox Cistercian order of monks was so concerned about the spread of Catharism in this region that he determined to visit in the summer of 1145 in spite of poor health. The source in this case of the unorthodox and disturbing teaching seems to have been a heretical preacher named Henri who had wandered through the afflicted areas since 1116 when he showed up as a penniless, barefoot proselytizer. He had a real knack for bringing folks to his theological side through humor and scripture, relates Peg, and asked the sort of impertinent questions that eventually led the good citizens of Athens to insist our buddy Socrates suck down a hemlock milkshake. St. Bernard saw this Henri guy as afflicted with and... Please believe we're quoting directly to give you a flavor of the banal anti-Semitism of the time. Amazing and truly Jewish blindness. Yeesh. Yeah, but remember, life for most Jews during this era was a struggle to build up enough resources that whenever the local ruler decided to blame you for a bad weather cycle or some mysterious disease or an earthquake or his own corruption or whatever, and the local peasantry drove you out of the region, you would be able to rebuild your life in some marginally less murderous locality. And the authorities treated Jewish people this way because they blamed Jews for deicide. God sent his son, Jesus, to be born a Jew and die for your sins, and you guys helped the Romans kill God and never accepted him even afterward. And therefore, anything we do to you is totally kosher. Awkward phrasing. Perhaps, but the point is Bernard, a mainstream and therefore Jew-blaming religious figure of his era, is moved to stamp out the heresy Henri is promoting because he sees Henri's ideas as being as dangerous as those of the Christ-murdering Jews. In other words, to Bernard, this heresy was the biggest sort of theological threat to the all caps truth as revealed by the church.
7: Okay, so what, exactly, were the specifics of the Cathar theology that so upset the church and its defenders in this era?
0: Yeah, let's get into it. First things first, as we noted before, the Cathars didn't refer to themselves as Cathars. Peg notes.
7: No Provençal heretic was ever styled Cathar, by choice or accusation, during the years of the Crusade.
0: The term seems to have been taken from a small and obscure group of heretics in 4th century Macedonia who called themselves the pure, that is, Cathars. The term came to be adopted in late antiquity as generic for all heretics. When anti-heretical efforts started up again in the 12th century, the authorities latched onto this by-then-ancient designation and slapped it onto those whom they sought to oppose in their contemporary
7: world. How obscure was the origin of the term cathar? Peg relates that a 12th century Cistercian presumed to generate his own history for the term, suggesting that it derived from catus, the Latin word for cat, And refer to the tradition among the heretics of kissing the hind parts of a cat in whose likeness, so they say, Lucifer appears to them.
0: With his vivid imagination and flagrant disregard for evidence, we can't help but feel this dude would, in another time and place, have made for an exemplary conspiracist. Anyway, to the Cathars who didn't call themselves Cathars, Christ was pure spirit. Not in reality or even appearance born of a human woman named Mary, who was not a woman at all. She was simply the will to do good. Christ therefore had no human attributes, for he did not eat, drink, suffer hunger, thirst or cold, neither did he die. He just went back to God when his mission on earth was done. Another notable difference that the faith had with mainstream Catholicism. Catharism had far fewer significant consecrated ceremonies than did the mainstream church, and what we now know about them comes, of course, from the Cathar's theological enemies. But one of the main ceremonies that everyone agrees was central to Cathar belief was the act of consolamentum, or literally consoling which Catholic theologians saw as similar to baptism in the mainstream church, quoting a contemporary anti cathar polemicist.
7: The wretch who is to be baptized, or Catharized, stands in the middle of the meeting, and the arch Cathar stands by him, holding a book which is used for this office. He places a book on his head and recites blessings, or rather curses, while those who stand around pray and make him a son of Gehenna.
0: Lambert takes issue with this analogy, noting that the consolamentum is significantly different than an orthodox Christian baptism. The latter welcomes a new believer into the fold.
7: Often, while that so-called believer is still an infant.
0: But the former is a ceremony by which a standard-issue Cathar believer is enrolled in the much more select elite group of inner circle perfects, or perfecti. These folks are somewhat analogous to the clergy in the mainstream church, insofar as the average Cathar believer has a duty to take care of the perfect's earthly needs so they can concentrate on spiritual matters. Lambert indicates that the relationship between the believers and the perfects was the spiritual heart of the movement itself. It's hard to explain how important the perfects were. They were the ones who had sworn a life of celibacy, vegetarianism, and complete devotion to the anti-material doctrine of the Cathar church. For Cathar believers, the perfects were only partially material humans. They were also partly something more. For example, the one true spiritual god, the one who was not of this world, would only hear the prayers of the perfects, not those of unconsoled Cathar believers. And certainly he ignored the prayers of Orthodox Christians, since their prayers were aimed at the demonic god of this world in Cathar theology.
8: It wasn't as if they, they didn't have a hierarchy, because there were bishops— and there were two classes of believers. There were those who went all in and adopted vegetarianism and celibacy and a simple itinerant life, and those became the perfecti. And then there were just ordinary people who tried to do the best they could, and and that was enough. But they tended to reject the hierarchy of the church. So they rejected the authority of the popes, the archbishops. Cathars didn't go and build cathedrals. They met like early Christians in their own communities, worshiping wherever they could find a place to do so. One of the things the Inquisition noted is that when you were fighting the Cathars, it wasn't as if you were going to march on the town and destroy their church and kill their priests. There was no physical church to attack. There were just the people. The Cathars, I don't think, started out as a secret society, but it was the persecution of the church that turned them into one, because then you have to hide then you have to disguise and lie about what it is that you're doing, so they were a challenge to the wealth and authority of the church, but they are also a challenge to the whole theology of the church. They seem to have believed in two deities: a good God and a bad God. The good God, the bon Dieu, was all forgiving and kind and wonderful, but the problem was he didn't actually live in the phenomenal world. okay I don't know he was off somewhere in another dimension that that was the world beyond. Where we existed in this world was the construction of the demiurge, of the bad God, who wasn't really so much bad as he was just vain and stupid. And all of the sufferings and cruelty of the world was the result of it being an imperfect creation. That's Gnosticism, the vague term at best. Now, in some ways, it could be argued it's salvation through knowledge as opposed to salvation through faith. Cathars never called themselves Cathars. They simply called themselves good people or good Christians.